Honey, the cat is missing. Honey, the cat is missing. It's all about coincidence here in Pontypool. I don't want to see an ordinary film. I want to see something extraordinary. Your sacrifice completes my sanctuary of 1,000 testicles. You ever feel as if your mind had started to erode? Right, Let's rock indeed. Welcome to 1,000 Wives of Weird. I'm Brad Hefner. And with me, as always, is my co-host... Billy Martell. And this is a podcast is a celebration of weird movies. And this time, it's also a celebration of my birthday. Happy birthday! Thank you. As St. Frosty the Snowman once said. Did he say that? He when did, did he say, say that. Did he say that to baby Jesus at the manger? <laughs> Have you not seen the Frosty the Snowman special? I. It's been... Almost 30 years, probably. Every time he gets brought to life, he says, Happy birthday! Oh. And this continues when he eventually gets a family of snowmen, a wife, and baby snowmen, uh, and he meets up with Rudolph and Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July. They all say happy birthday when they are killed and brought back to life. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. Yes. Do you think Jesus said that on his resurrection day? <laughs> Just maybe quietly to himself, because he was sneaking out. Behind, did it. Happy birthday. Sneaking out past the, the sleeping Roman soldiers is just like, happy birthday to me, and he ran off. Maybe he said it sadly, because no one else was like, Aww. everyone was just like, where did body go? Like, <laughs> um, Nobody else cares that I'm here. <laughs> but yeah, five years ago, mm -hmm. uh, almost to this day, mm -hmm. on the previous iteration of this podcast, for my birthday, for whatever reason, I wanted to talk about Pontypool, mm -hmm. one of my absolute favorite movies. I mean, why wouldn't you want to talk about Pontypool? So we're uh, we're doing it again, since we're we already talked about Repo Man, one of my other favorite movies. Yes. Pontypool to... This is a movie that definitely benefits, as all movies do, from knowing as little about it as possible. In fact, it's almost hard to tell you what the movie is about without giving away spoilers. Yeah. So here's... I, I, I thought about this. Here's how we're going to describe it. Okay. You know in horror movies, mm -hmm. characters are usually listening to some sort of news broadcast in the background or it's playing to give you exposition. Yeah. This is a story told from the side of that radio broadcast. Right. From the station doing that during the horror story. So like in the in the old campfire story about oh no the car radio says there's a there's a maniac with a hook for a hand in town sure this is like if it was a story about the news announcer getting the the teletype across the wire being like oh man there's a there's a maniac with a hook for a hand out in the out and about or even uh, in the commentary for Pontypool they talk about uh, the dead movies like. It said that when there's no more room in hell, or there's there's people eating everybody, there's reports of cannibalism across the state. Right. Yeah. 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 That yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I think that's a fair description of the film. Absolutely. So we're probably going to be talking a lot about this movie. So let's let's get every, the top done quickly. Mm -hmm. Billy, obviously, I would recommend it yes. because it's one of my favorites. Billy, absolutely. would you recommend Pontypool? I would absolutely recommend Pontypool. My First introduction to this movie was back in college. Uh, my roommate at the time was big into 
a genre this movie falls into and uh, showed showed the film to me right before he and everybody else on campus left for a break mm-hmm. and I was going to be on campus alone. We watched the movie and then I was stuck in a building with a lot of corridors <laughs> uh, alone at night. This movie to this day, I've seen a lot of movies, we've seen a lot of movies for this show, we've seen a lot mm-hmm. of movies in, in, in life. This movie scares the shit out of me every time I watch it. It's very effective. Consistently. It's so, so good. It's so good. It's definitely one of those kinds of horrors that gets under your skin, though. This is not like a... uh, What's the other one that we watched for this that I said was really scary? Uh, Imprint? Imprint. This isn't like Imprint where I was like, gross! No, this is... is This is pure horror. This is pure... This is horror in its purest form. Hitchcockian horror. And... Yeah, and that's part of why it's on this show is, one, it's just a good film, and Mm -hmm. it's severely underrated and underknown. There's nothing like it. But again, just to, this is sort of a non sequitur, but Mm -hmm. to give its weird bona fides, it's Mm -hmm. it's unique. It really is. I don't believe I've ever seen a horror film like this. No, this this is the kind of movie that the show is for. Absolutely. This is, you will never see another movie like Pontypool. Ever. There is one piece of media that I could compare it to, and I don't want to say it for fear of giving too much of the plot away. Okay. But I will mention it once we get into the spoiler section. But, like, there's there's only one thing I could compare it to, and it's not even a movie. Okay. Yeah. We'll bring it up uh, if you remember to later. I will. It's so in my notes. We're gonna, I'm going to give a little bit of my personal background on the story. Sure. On this movie. But, again, if you have any interest in horror films... Mm-hmm. Stop this. Yes. Go watch Pontypool. I don't think the DVD is that expensive. It's no. It's also if you have a Shutter subscription, I believe it's on Shutter. This is like a low budget Canadian movie, so yes. it got one DVD release ages ago. Mm-hmm. It has not been. Re- it needs a Blu-ray, but like it is never. It's not been released on Blu-ray. I first heard about this movie through. I talked on the Let It Ride episode mm-hmm. about a internet user named Jay Trotter. Okay who made lists on a site called Listall right. of obscure, bizarre, and underrated films. And this was on that list. Right. And it was on Netflix at the time. Mm-hmm. So one night, I used to put on movies a lot to just sleep during, especially <laughs> horror movies. So it was like, That's so weird to me. <laughs> I'd just be like, this looks like a shitty movie I don't really want to watch. I'll okay, put it on enough. and I'll go to sleep. Yeah. Not that I thought Pontypool was shitty, but I was like, I'll start it and then I'll finish it tomorrow. Sure. So the next day, I actually had court-ordered community service. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'll get to sleep and I'll be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for my court-ordered community service. Mm-hmm. I started watching Pontypool. I was hooked immediately mm-hmm. and it scared the shit out of me. This right. was This was back when I was unmedicated, as we talked about before. Yes. Things used to scare me a lot more. Mm-hmm. This frightened the fuck out of me and I could not sleep at all you can't yeah no i i distinctly remember again my roommate leaves just like looking down one long corridor looking down one the other long corridor being like well i'm i'm fucked this is like i'm not sleeping tonight yeah it's it's nuts it's nuts how effective this film is yeah this is a 2008 film directed by bruce mcdonald who is Mm -hmm. sort of Kind of a big deal in Canada, not a huge deal, sort of an indie director. I guess like they're Kevin Smith, maybe. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, he rose to prominence with his film Roadkill. He's also known for uh, sort of a mockumentary called Hardcore Logo. 
Fun, fun. It was written by Tony Burgess. Mm -hmm. He also wrote the book that this is based off of, Pontypool Changes Everything. Yes. Now, I've read the book. I read it back five years ago in preparation for the original episode. Mm -hmm. The book does not have a lot in common with the movie. Right. In fact, I'll talk a little bit about what the character of Grant Mazzy is in the mm-hmm. book a little bit later, but it's it's very an abstract, nebulous, sort of jumping from viewpoint to viewpoint sort of story. Yeah. The thing I remember most vividly is two characters have an incest baby, their brother and sister, yeah. and the baby is born and it can like walk and it shouts, fuck you, and runs out the door. That's not in this movie. Uh, no, no, none of that is in this movie. I, I will say Tony Burgess, doing a little bit of my own research, Tony Burgess also wrote a movie that came out that we may want to talk about for the show called Fuck My Friends. Really? Which is about the consequences of corpse diddling. Okay. <laughs> Put that on the board. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd assume there's a lot of consequences. There there, there are definitely some consequences to, to diddling a corpse. Yes. Yeah. I don't know that it would be a profitable bit to talk about those consequences. Probably not. We'll just have to watch the movie and find them for ourselves. Yep. So some of the original ideas for this film, it went through a lot of rewrites. Mm-hmm. With such a sort of like vague book, it yeah. makes sense that you wouldn't quite know how to adapt it right off the bat. So the first idea, they started very small, and then they slowly expanded it. The first idea was it would be entirely audio and you would just see the voice signature that we're about to talk about, the audio signature that we're about to mention. Yeah. It would just be that the entire time. It'd just be Grant Mazzy's voice and the audio signature reflecting it, and that's it. Fascinating. So it it, it would have been sort of like the the horror movie equivalent of the movie Blue. Sure. I, Except I haven't with seen more Blue. motion on screen. But it, this was also sort of simultaneously this came out as a CBC radio drama. Mm-hmm. So it'd be sort of like that, except with a Winamp visualizer. Right. That grew into, it would just be a one shot of Grant Mazzy's face mm. and you would hear Sidney Breyer and you would hear about Laurel Ann, but it would just be all Grant Mazzy's face. And I don't, obviously I think we got a superior film. Yes. But if there was a man who could do that, it's McCaddy. We we haven't mentioned McCaddy yet. We'll talk about let's let's talk about McCaddy in a little bit here. Okay. Like I said, this movie grabbed me immediately. Mm-hmm. We get this wonderful monologue with Stephen McCaddy, who plays Grant Mazzy. His smooth voice. Oh my God. He's talking about Mrs. French's cat, Honey, who has gone missing. The gist of the monologue is a series of linguistic coincidences mm-hmm. that lead Mazzy to repeat the word Pontypool over. And over again, the movie is already establishing ideas that are going to come into play as both words meaning different things. Mm-hmm. Honey, the cat is missing could mean honey is the name of the cat that is missing or honey, my dear, the cat is missing. Right. Yes. And also terms of endearment will become weapons. Later Absolutely. On. And the fact that repeating a word makes it lose meaning. Yes. Pontypool, pontuflock, pont, pont, pantypool. Mm-hmm. It, it's... Pontypool, by the way, real town real place, in uh, Canada that this movie takes place in. In Ontario, I believe. In Ontario. The title slowly fades, fades in, letter by letter. For a moment, just the word typo is on screen. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Also, uh, by the way, the DVD release, at least that I own, is distributed by every film snob's favorite distributor, IFC. Yes. Yes. Love the ending of the monologue. What does it mean? 
well, it means something's about to happen, something big. Mm-hmm. But then something's always about to happen. The writing in this movie is so fucking tight. It's amazing. It's, it's so beautiful. It's it's like uh, it feels like this this was a stage play that got adapted into a yeah. movie. And we've talked about that aspect of this film before. Like mm-hmm. we also we often we not often it's not like a daily conversation where we phone each other up and we're like how can we stage horror for theater (laughs) right yeah but we do talk we talk about it yeah and pontypool is the closest thing i've ever seen to that happening i agree i think that pontypool absolutely could work on stage finally we get some visuals aside from just the audio signature that accompanied Mm -hmm. grant's monologue we see grant mazzy a local radio host driving in a snowstorm Mm -hmm. and this is just the small details, like he's basically driving in a black void. Mm-hmm. You see snow. It's it's really well shot. Oh yeah, he's yelling at his agent because he's not happy working in a podunk town, mm-hmm. doing a morning show. He's also listening to his own show. Yes, I mean, so he's one of us. Yeah, no, <laughs> I I listen to our show frequently. Oh yes, yeah, I. Uh, he throws his cell phone down and it starts ringing again. So Grant pulls off to the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And here, like the monologue hooked me because it was interesting. But here's where I first started to get like scared, scared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got started to get into it. A hand slaps the passenger side window. Mm-hmm. A well-dressed woman is outside speaking so he can't understand her. Like that unnerved me. She, like mm-hmm. it's just barely unintelligible. Grant rolls down the window as the woman backs away into nothing but snow and darkness. Like, there's no trees or anything. She's repeating something over and over again under her breath. Uh, Repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. Grant yells, hey, and she mimics his voice back to him. Hey, hey, Mm -hmm. hey. And then the same when he asks, who are you? And it echoes in the darkness. Now, Grant Mazzy is played by one of our favorite actors of all time. Primarily from this movie. Yes. But every time I see him, I'm happy... I see him. Yes. Stephen McCaddy. Stephen McCaddy. Most people probably, if anyone knows Stephen McCaddy, uh, at least Star Trek fans like myself will probably know him as the originator of the, it's a fake meme, which is, Brad has no idea what I'm talking about. This is a Star Trek fan thing. But uh, if you've ever seen a picture of a Romulan going, it's a fake, that's Stephen McCaddy. If you see any other clip but that, you see him giving one of the best performances in any episode of Star Trek ever because he's Stephen McCaddy yeah. and that's what he fucking does. But he's incredible and he, aside from this movie and like a couple of films in Canada that neither of us have seen, he does not get the due that he, he is does worth. not. He does not. Yeah. He should be at least on the level of a Harry Dean Stanton. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful character actor. He was in the Elijah Wood movie, Come to Daddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, too little of him, unfortunately. As the original daddy. Yes. Mm-hmm. As Daddy Numero Uno. As, daddy as he's Numero credited. Uno. That's the this... Mexican production. <laughs> he was oh. also Hollis Mason in Watchmen. That's the other thing that people probably know yeah. him best from. Yeah. The, the Romulan meme and Hollis Mason. And again, he does not get enough to do in that movie no. there's a great deleted scene where he gets to kick a little ass so if you've seen the ultimate cut you've seen that uh he was in something called pterodactyl women of beverly hills of course he was of which sounds like was. something we need to look up yes uh he was in the movie shoot him up okay that's a decent movie i haven't seen it i hope uh paul giamatti's in that as well oh. i hope Stephen mccaddy and paul giamatti like had like 
a lot of good times. I would love for there to be a movie about Paul Giamatti being like a down in his luck idiot and uh, like trying to get out of some deal with the mob. And Steve McCaddy's the mob boss is like, I'm if you get me the money or I collect your tongue or something like that. Just Here's like what I was crazy. thinking: Paul Giamatti's down on his luck, mm-hmm. and Stephen McCaddy's like this older grifter who's like, "I'll help you out, but I'm really just gonna fuck you over more." Even better. Paul Giamatti's down on his luck. <laughs> Paul Giamatti's down on his luck. Stephen McCaddy's the devil. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, I can help you for your soul. It'd be Stephen McCaddy would be an amazing devil. He would be. And he's also in another one of our favorites, Mother. That's he's right. He's the zealot. That's right. He's blinking, you'll miss it. Oh, and he was just in... Uh, the recent Guillermo Toro film. Oh yeah, he has a very small part in Nightmare Alley. In Nightmare Alley, in which you blink and you miss it, but he he was he was fantastic. And I did that. blink and I did miss it. We we both blinked and missed it. But yeah, no, Stephen McCaddy is is one of our favorite actors. Favorite character. All of our favorite actors are character actors. Yeah, but he's like yeah, god tier. Absolutely. Uh, and this opening scene. I love it because we we've talked a little bit about this in terms of like horror movies and and how sim- simple horror stories can be to be effective. Mm-hmm. Um, this opening is l- literally the opening of a night gallery episode. Yep, like it just it it it's so simple. It it establishes Grant Mazzy's character archetype. Yeah, he's full of himself because he's listening to his own show. He's exactly. unhappy with his place in life. Yeah, he's like he has he has the all you have to do is have a guy coming in being like, but Marty, you're my agent. You yeah. gotta get me out of here. I'm in the middle of nowhere. That's in just. You're good, and yeah. then the monster comes out of the woods, uh, out of the out of the snow, and then disappears back into it. There's also we're already, aside from language and all of that, this movie mm-hmm. also has a lot of themes of loneliness and isolation. Yes, definitely. Which Grant is driving alone in his car, which is just another glass booth that he's trapped inside of. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Just surrounded by nothing, that. which Absolutely. is how he feels when he's in the studio or in Pontypool mm-hmm. at all. Grant used to be a big city radio DJ, yes. but got bumped down to the farm league. Absolutely. Grant goes to the studio where uh, his space is reserved by a laminated piece of paper. That's how Rinky Dink and Low Rent, they're operating out of an... A basement of a church. It's not clear if the church is still in operation. Right, yeah. Or if it's a defunct church or what, but either way, it's Rinky Dink and Low Rent. Very, very Rinky Dink. I also love how... Um, so. Grant Mazzy seems to be very much based on, uh, like, Imus. Imus, and, he wears a uh, cowboy hat. But, you, so, you, these, these these sort of, like, larger-than-life radio personalities. And the guy who I cannot remember the name of that I'm trying to talk about, and Imus in particular, like, they have these... Lar- they have these incredible voices, yeah. but they also have these, like, yeah, lar- larger-than-life personal styles that they go along with it. And even though Steve McCaddy is just, like, a normal-looking guy, although, I mean, his face is iconic, but, like, a norm- normal-looking guy with, like, a normal hair, they have, 
made up for that by giving him like a big cowboy, cowboy hat. hat he's dressed he's, like he's from the southwest he looks like a wrestler he's got like rings on every <laughs> finger and he does this he does this thing whenever he's like stressed where he like just like he, he like he opens whips, whips out his fingers his palm and just, like, and slowly closes it in front of his face it like he's i a, love it i like love he's, it like so he's much bruce lee about to deliver a killing blow and it's just it's again it's establishing that character yes. and this weird eccentric full of himself asshole inside the studio we meet laurel and drummond mm-hmm. i love laurel and i love her voice i mm-hmm. love the little smiles the actress gives oh yes. everyone we we're going to praise mccaddy a lot yes but all the actors and the actresses in this film do great except for dr john mendez I, I've warmed up to Doctor John I like, on this I like episode. Doctor Mendez. Yeah, but the actresses knock it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actress is Georgina Riley, and she actually lived in England until she was sixteen. Oh, so she is doing an accent technically. Wow, good for her. Yeah. I, w- I would never have guessed. I will say. I will say. Speaking of the actor, the only act performance I'm not sure about is the performance of Osama bin Laden. Okay, but we'll get to that. Sure. Yeah. Grant... That's just to throw off people who decided to ignore <laughs> going to see the movie, and now they're like, yes. what the fuck is going on? Osama Bin Laden? <laughs> what? Hold on, what, what, what genre is this? <laughs> Here's where I noted that Grant is a fucking heathen. Because, <laughs> because he has asked Laurel Ann to get him some whiskey for his coffee in the morning, mm-hmm. and he specifically requests the good stuff, mm-hmm. which I believe... I didn't catch it on this watch, but later we'll see Sydney drinking some Glenfiddich single malt whiskey, mm-hmm. and Grant pours it in his fucking coffee. You don't put the good, you don't mix the good stuff. It's good because mm-hmm. you drink it on its own, right? Unless, mm-hmm. unless this is a character thing where it's like Grant is so full of himself that he's like, even though I'm mixing it with my coffee, I still need extremely expensive whiskey. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it might just be like a thing. Is is Jameson whiskey considered the good stuff? Mm, it's like mid level. It's mid level. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I was gonna say because I I I took a semester abroad. I studied in Ireland in college, and we went to the Jameson factory to do a tour. Oh. First time I ever had whiskey was at the end. They gave us samples, so I I, I took a straight shot, which was a mistake. Okay. Uh, for first time ever whiskey, just like, sh- whoa, ah, mouth is on fire. But then they also gave shots mixed with cranberry juice, with ginger ale, yeah, and with various sodas and stuff. And I wanted to know if that was uh, sacrilege. Um, I wouldn't mm-hmm. consider it. I have a friend who mixes Jameson with Diet Coke. Okay. There are worse things, but you, generally, if you're going to mix stuff, you might as well just get the cheapest stuff because sure. you're mostly going to be tasting the mixer. Right, yeah. I know nothing about any of this stuff, which is why I ask. I mean, technically, you can do whatever the fuck you want. True. It is America. It is America. You Not can't... Canada, like in this movie. Canada has too much of a French element <laughs> to, truly, to truly be about freedom. Right, no. They'll never know the, the taste of freedom fries. No. They won't. We slap them out of their dirty, cock-sucking <laughs> mouths. Oh, what is this? I will have the freedom fries. Not today, Limey, which is British people. But that's how much I disrespect your country. I won't even call you the right slur. The station is located on Drum Street. Mm. Now, I just want to point out some of these names. Grant, mm-hmm. Laurel, Drum. All things, but also name like people's names. Like that's You can right, get a yeah. Grant. Or you can be talking about Grant. Yeah. You can receive a Laurel, or we could be talking about Laurel Ann. 
it's drum street is it a drum or is it mr it's all these little confusions and repetitions all the different the double meanings yes meaning is very important in this movie as grant starts his show he introduces his producer sydney briar mm-hmm. again briar a thing and a name mm-hmm. sydney a place oh because yeah. it's actually spelled like the capital of australia like the capital of australia Sydney is played by Lisa Hool, I'm going to assume is how you pronounce the name. I'm not sure. She She's kind of obscure. so I can't. There is precious little information about her online. But she is married to McCaddy. Which is awesome. That is great. And they have a lot of great chemistry. Yes. Were they married when this movie was made? I or? believe so. Okay. Because well, Wikipedia says cute. that they were married sometime in the 90s. Right. And this came out 2008. So unless they took a break. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, adorable. That's yeah, great. Absolutely. I love that. And here is where I was looking at Wikipedia, and I saw that there is a spinoff movie to Pontypool mm-hmm. called Dreamland, which we will talk about at the end, I suppose. Sure. I will say this, the one of the coolest things about this movie is, for me is, it, we mentioned that it, it feels very much like a play. Yes. The dialogue is very flowery. It feels sort of like Angels in America, almost, with sure. like all of the sort of like playing with language and stuff. But at the same time... As theatrical as the movie is, it feels so real. It does. The characters feel like real. Every single one of them, the ones we see and the ones that we don't, yes. feel like real people totally. Pontypool, it is a real place, but the Pontypool of this movie feels like a real place. Again, the actors kill it so hard. Everyone's so natural. So Everyone's hard. just doing a fantastic job where it's like, yeah. again, Georgina Riley didn't go on to do... A lot of other... She's not huge. No. Everyone in this movie should be big stars. I, I completely agree. This is... This is this movie's so good. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Let's say you were on the radio. Okay. What would your DJ name be? My DJ name? Oh, man. What kind of music do I play on this Well, location? it could be music or it could be talk. Well, oh, what do you want okay. to do? Uh, What's your format? Oh, goodness. Goodness, goodness. Uh... Th- the minute you ask me anything like this, would be every, every DJ name I've ever thought of goes out of my brain. I would think I think I would want to play. I think I would want to talk about comic books, probably. Okay, because uh, that's like sounds just, more like a podcast than a radio show. Yeah, I think that's probably. I would talk about comic books, and I would I would uh, feature music that I think evokes the comic books I'm talking about. Okay, uh, so it'd be sort of like Casey Kasem, except instead of giving. Uh, a top 40 fun, of music. And yeah, instead of giving fun facts about the music in between the songs, I give fun facts about comic books no one cares anything about before I play songs. Okay, so you're still playing songs. I'm still playing Do songs. Do you just play the the jazz soundtrack to the 60s Spider-Man cartoon? <laughs> that and the jazz soundtrack. And, and the, the, uh, the uh, beach rock soundtrack to the 60s Batman show. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the Evanescence song from the Daredevil movie. Yeah. Uh, like, wake me up inside. Wake me up. I'm gonna be late for work. Uh, just any anything like that, and I, and I would call myself. Uh... <sighs> DJ comic book guy. I can't think of anything clever. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. Sure. Are you gonna ask me what my? Yeah. What would okay. your DJ name be? Um, I think I'd be Terry Garbage. <laughs> Okay, okay. And my format would be talk radio. Okay. But I'd only take calls from truckers who have killed sex workers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks, Ticket. Thank you. 
and the ghosts of those sex workers. <laughs> well, you're going to be waiting a long time for at least one of those. Which one? <laughs> I don't know. All I right. can't tell. We learned that Laurel Ann was a veteran. Yes, uh, and she was in Afghanistan. She was in Afghanistan, the good one. The good The one. good war. Which, I've seen this movie several times. I don't... I, I've been thinking a lot about the Iraq War recently. Yeah. Because it just kind of ended. It's a bit late. Yeah. I have some thoughts about the fact that she went to Afghanistan, but I think I should save them for closer to the end. Sure. All right. Uh, I, we, we, I love how this movie is shot. Oh, Everything yeah. is very up close and personal. It's a lot of tight shots. We don't get a lot of wide angles. Sure. And so it's all all dependent on acting, all face acting. And Be- because the movie doesn't have a lot of places to go. No. It's just it's just these three people. So all of the action, heavy air quotes action, has to be how these characters feel. That's yeah. the entire story is how these characters feel about what's going on. So yeah, that's the that's the exact right way to shoot it. And because it's and because McCaddy's the star and Grant's the star, mm-hmm. he's carrying the burden of this movie with his face. Like he's mm-hmm. incredibly expressive. Mm-hmm. It's he just knocks it out of the park. I will say this is some of the most facially expressive acting that mm-hmm. you will ever see. Again, very, feels very real. I'm not saying that these people are like overacting. No. But like, it's just like a lot of facial expression acting in this movie. Now we get my second favorite character. After Grant has done his show for a little bit, mm-hmm. we get our first call from Ken Loney in the Sunshine Chopper. Ken Loney. He gives the traffic reports. Mm-hmm. And because there's a snowstorm going out on outside, Grant... Is concerned. Is half joking, a little bit ribbing. Yeah. But he's like, aren't you... Is it safe up there in the snowstorm? Right. And he's like, oh, I'm going to stay up here and get the traffic. That's not safe, Ken. And uh, let's let's stress how low rent this show is. Like, how mm-hmm. how much of just a local DJ Grant is. He does on-air birthdays. He does obituaries. Mm-hmm. He reports local news. He does a local, yeah, the local uh, events calendar and yep. everything. And after we say goodbye to Ken, after he gives his traffic report... He does a fear-mongering little monologue. Like, this is where the Imus, the Rush Limbaugh, the yes. the stuff comes in about pot growers. And now, there's a report, there's a news item that comes across his desk about how the local police have cracked down on a... Grow operation. On a grow operation. Well, it's a pre-recorded, like, interview bit with a police captain yeah. that he plays. Which, in the meantime, just to really hammer home both how pointless pot being illegal is and also how much he does not care about the story before he starts expanding upon it he and uh sydney Sydney have a little go back and forth like you smoke pot sid sure do grant yeah hell yeah and he goes right back in the ears like yeah these fucking pot growers and like they're they're they have they they probably have and he's just making this shit up yeah just it's all bullshit like about booby trap about booby traps grow operations in suburbia could turn a suburban uh, neighborhood into a death squad no the line is uh Timmy throws a ball through a window and yeah. he triggers a death squad. The way he hits the phrase death, death squad, squad is yeah. so amazing. That's the important bit. I wrote down uh, at this point, if Stephen McCaddy it was the host of Welcome to Night Vale, I'd have listened to the whole thing twice by now. Yes. Uh, Sydney tells him to focus on school closures, mm-hmm. not his take no prisoners shtick. Again, I, I wrote down this note while I was watching the movie. 
in retrospect at the end, I think it, 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 I have a different thought, but I, I will say that watching through the movie now, I wrote it, Grant Massey was easier to feel bad for before being a reactionary pundit who makes shit up for views became not funny anymore in the last few years. Yeah. That was a reaction I had when watching this movie this time. But again, I think that there's something more... I think that that's intentional on the movie's part. I think that you're supposed to be like, he kind of deserves this yeah, on some level. And also, he has a bit right after this. He says, you have to stick to, to this. You have to stick to doing the thing. And he's like... Well, I'm trying to piss people off. Yes. And if I piss someone off... Then they tell their brother, and their they brother. tell their barber. And... and that's how you create a listening audience. That's yes. how you get engagement. And I was like... Looking back on that from the end, it's almost like an infection that spreads through words. Yeah. I think you're right. show. I think you're right. Um, and I think that that's the point. I think Even that's if it's point. not intentional it's still a great thing to take from the movie yeah and again like it's clear that grant is a grifter so oh, it's yes. not it's not being like he's not he's not a true believer no so you're not like this idiot he's wrong for what he's doing for the yes, fear mongering and absolutely. all that but at the same time you're like at least he knows what he's doing is bullshit he doesn't believe it he's not a zealot no he's not he's not a zealot he's not uh Actually, it's impossible to tell which of these pundits know what they're, yeah. believe what they're saying and which ones don't, so I'm not even going to name a name. But uh, Sydney hates it, but Laurel Ann is, she digs it. She digs Grant's vibe. Mm -hmm. she, she she seems to be a fan. And she, she seems to have a bit of a, 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 bit crush. Of a crush on yeah. him. Like, that just is the whole vibe from her. And one thing I appreciate is that, again, Grant is our quote-unquote hero, mm -hmm. but he's not pervy to Laurel Ann. Like, he seems like he could easily take advantage of that. He does. He did, like, give her, like, sort of a smile when he first came in. Like, I think he's... Oh, my weird. God, a smile. I think he's... The, 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 the way of the smile made me think that he was aware. I'm sure. I don't think that he would take, at least the way that the character is in this movie, I don't think he would ever take sexual advantage. No. But I do think he does take advantage of it insofar as he's, like... Hey, could you run this errand for me to get the good stuff? Sure. Like that sort of advantage. Because she's not like a PA, she's an engineer. Exactly. But he's, Which she, I don't think I mentioned, she's the show's engineer. She still goes and gets him like coffee and whiskey and shit, yeah. which she doesn't have to do. Uh, outside we see a lost cat poster for Honey. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile we hear the woman from earlier repeating, Who are you? Still. Mm. Grant got the ladies' valentines, which I love. Yes. Grant is a good-hearted man. He just has a terrible shtick. He's just, yeah, he's just kind of a dick. <laughs> which we see in full display when Grant gets news of a hostage situation involving an ice fishing hut. Mm -hmm. Grant insults the locals and the police, saying that everyone involved was probably drunk. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's funny because... Uh, he starts reporting on it like it's a very serious issue because that's yeah. his, that's his whole thing. He's going to go into it like he's really serious, 
And Sydney is like, come on, Grant. There's just people. It's just people taking the huts off of the thing. There, it's 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 the end of the season. They're the probably season. drunk. They're probably drunk. And he snacks, snaps that up midstream, and completely changes gears. Yes, and turns it into a bit, and then starts making fun of both them, the cops, everybody involved. Yep, and takes it way farther. And you can see even Laurel Ann, as much as she's liked everything else he's done, no matter how crazy, even she's starting to get like grim yes yeah because uh grant throws to ken again mm-hmm. and sydney comes into the booth and is like hey those cops actually are alcoholics and even grant said like his entire face falls yeah like and then she tells him that by the way ken loney is in a dodge dart he's sitting at the top <sighs> of the hill and he's playing sound effects right and everyone in town loves the idea that Ken has, a, that they have their own chopper, and Ken's up there giving them the reports. Right. That's that's the kind of. It's a beautiful. It's yeah. a beautiful detail. It's a beautiful detail, and also it like it it you can see Grant like both Grant and us as the audience are now finally kind of picking up on. That's what we're dealing with yes. here. This is what this town is, and Grant is finally like you can see that he's still sad. Yeah. In fact. I wrote down, uh, I never fully appreciated until watching it for this episode, how truly depressed Grant really is. Yeah. Um, Because I believe here's where we get his little bit about how much he hates winter. Right. Yeah, he says, I hate winter. Which is, everyone hates winters. Not like I do. Not like I do. And earlier, when he's reporting on the weather, he he describes it as a "please freaking kill me" cold front. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he hates winter. He feels so yeah lonely and desolate and boxed in, as you said. Like yeah. it's it's and uh, and we rarely see Grant out of the booth for about two thirds of the movie. Mm-hmm. And when it's very telling during the one the first scene that we do finally see him get out of the booth later. It's very telling, yeah. but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just such this great moment. And this is also like you were talking about Grant's not a zealot. No, he's not a, like a true blue asshole. He is an asshole, but he's not yeah. like that kind of asshole when he's corrected, when he's put in his place like this, when she takes the time to like, ex- to lay it all when out. When it's no longer a joke. When it's no longer a joke. And he's, and she's not like badgering him while he's trying to talk. Yeah. When she comes in, is like, Hey, here's what it is. And she lays it all out. He takes that in and he absorbs that. And he's like, okay. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, he interacts with Ken Loney several more times. Yes. He never jokes about the dark. No, absolutely not. And he stops with all the, like, even the ribbing about like, are you safe up there, Ken? Yeah. Like he stops with all that. He corrects himself. Yeah. And he also realizes that Ken is safe. So he doesn't need to worry about that. Right. Uh, Grant has a mug that says, want a hump? It has a picture of a camel. Again, another multi-meaning word that can cause confusion. Oh my God. There you go. Uh, Sydney is talking to Laurel and telling her that the fishing hut story was serious, not just drunk annex, and the police want them to drop it. Mm. We're about 20 in, 20 minutes in, mm-hmm. and not a lot has happened. The intro is so quick, but I feel it really tides us over until things start to get really freaky. Mm-hmm. Still, I love everything everything so far the camera work is on point the acting is great Mm -hmm. it brings out the smoothness of the writing and we just glide through almost a half hour absolutely i i honestly until you just said that i had no idea that was a half that was 20 minutes in yep i would have told you that was 10 at 10 at most five maybe and now here's where 
the vibe starts to change. Mm -hmm. Ken calls Sydney and he's freaking out. Great detail. Sydney says, okay. And immediately after during his broadcast, Grant says, okay. Mm -hmm. Echoing her words, like the repetition and also how, what we will come to know as the conversationalists Mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. So Grant gets news that there's a large crowd outside the offices of Dr. John Mendez. Mm -hmm. They are unruly and goddamn, I love McCaddy's voice. Oh my God. A local doctor who has been recently cited for giving unnecessary prescriptions. Yeah. Which I was confused by that detail like is that important or am i i am i reading into that too much i have no clue Um, i i i might just be some color it might just be i don't know what unnecessary prescription would you ask for i i i think that's the pot thing again okay i think it's going back to the pot i think that's what it was why i I imagine more like painkillers something like oh that that could be well that would be causing way more harm than the pot if if that's the case but uh i i think that's what i was thinking is like going back to sort of like the drug scare again i would ask for you know when people lose their legs and they get those blades oh that would be my unnecessary prescription (laughs) your unnecessary i would go to the pharmacy full unnecessary surgery well yeah but i'd still go to the pharmacy for it (laughs) right yeah i'd have them chop off my legs there just in the back room yeah have where they have the snack cakes Mm -hmm. yeah just the medicinal snack cakes the medicinal snack filled with polio vaccine right no i'm imagining you're like in the in the wegman's pharmacy or the right aid or something and they just like you're right next to the fruit snacks and they just like cut off bam Wop off your Well, leg, I guess I'd go back to the meat department. They'd use the saw, oh, take off my leg. That makes sense. Put me in a shopping cart. Yeah. Push me up to the pharmacy. Yeah. I guess, I don't know much about surgery. I assume they screw them on. I assume. I assume they put uh, threads on my Based bones. Based on the medical documentary that we watched for the show, Machine Girl. Yes. That's exactly how that works. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. I'll mm-hmm. talk to my doctor. I'll slip him 20 bucks. <laughs> say, hey... Write me a, a prescription for the Oscar Pistorius special. <laughs> based on everything that I know about the medical field, uh, based on avoiding going to the doctor for a long time because I don't have insurance, $20 sounds right. Should be fine. Should be fine. Grant talks, or Ken talks to Grant. He's still playing his chopper noises. This is so fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. And again, here's where the movie sort of lulls you down. Oh, yeah. And then you start to get fucking terrified again. Mm -hmm. Because the actor who voices Ken Loney, Rick Roberts, fucking kills it. Oh, my God. He is... Ken is... You never see Ken. Never. Never. Ken is so alive. Absolutely. When I think about this movie, I I don't always remember Dr. Mendez. Because that's the weaker part of the film. Mm, More just because, like, he's in so little of it. True. And I don't... I don't remember the theater troupe. I don't remember Osama. Oh, I always remember the theater. I don't remember Osama bin Laden, but I always remember Ken. I remember the three people who are always there. And Mm -hmm. I remember Ken. Uh, He's just, he's such a part of the cast. Absolutely. Yeah. Ken tells Grant that hundreds of people are trying to get into the offices of Mm -hmm. Dr. John Mendez, Mm -hmm. and suddenly the building bursts open. Mm -hmm. This visual image, because again, it's just voice, and we're watching Grant's reaction, but in my mind, when I think of this building bursting open, I picture concrete. 
not wood or oh, yeah. whatever. And at it's br- just brick at least. Brick. It's just the idea that so many people can just deliriously jam themselves into a building mm-hmm. that it causes concrete to burst is horrifying to me. Absolutely. And Rick Roberts is selling every inch of this. The descriptions that he gives of yeah, but the, it's the the building like bursting open. Like I think I forget the simile he uses for the wall, but like the wall just collapsing or just like bursting like a bubble, and yeah. people just sort of like overwhelming the entire structure. And it's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. Glorious. And again, it's very natural sounding dialogue. It's not mm-hmm. this faux like overwritten thing. It's just a terrified man describing what he's seeing. Yeah, which has been his job. It's just never been this terrifying before. He's always just been sitting on that hill describing what he's seeing. Right. And now... And I'm not saying anything that like hasn't been said a million times before, but the strength of radio drama and the, the strength of any movie where they like prevent you from seeing something is that what's in your mind is always scarier than what you can see. Absolutely. And Absolutely. That's what... The thing that I was going to say, now that we've gotten to this point, I can... Again, if, if you're... If you decide to ignore the spoiler warning and just dove into this part, now that we've revealed this, that that uh, essentially much of the movie is going to be people in a radio station hearing about horrible things happening. Yes. The thing that most closely reminds me of this movie, or that this movie most closely reminds me of, is Orson Welles' famous War, War of the, the Worlds broadcast. And I wrote down this. This is like no War of the Worlds movie has ever made me interested. It's, it's ever made me interested enough to watch it. No, because that original Orson Welles broadcast is so good. Yeah, and I've always wanted like a movie to capture that feeling. And obviously, none of the movies can because no. it's just a bunch of goofy aliens with ray guns. This movie is the best War of the Worlds movie I've ever seen. Absolutely, because it does have that. And Ken Loney's performance absolutely like captures that same element of the reporters in that broadcast being like there there are women and children just bursting into flames and just disintegrating in front of my eyes yeah. it's, it's 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 the race coming a little bit closer it's it's a hundred meters to my right cuts out like that moment scarred me as a child and this this ken loney's performance in this movie he's scars fucking amazing me every time i watch it he's so goddamn amazing and mm-hmm Again, we've said it, but it cannot be stressed enough that everything mm-hmm. we're telling you about the crazy shit that Ken Loney is saying, we do not see. We no. are just in that radio station. But it lives in my mind forever. Absolutely. The yeah. crowd is wild. They're trampling people. The military arrives. Mm-hmm. Ken tries to leave, but can't, and then cuts out. And Grant is genuinely concerned. At like a certain point, he does stop playing the sound effects, by the way. Yeah. He stops... He. He, I think there's probably like a tape or something he has to keep re- resetting. Sure. He stops it and you can hear him like, oh man, I can't back out of here. Like he's he's so freaked out he forgets to keep up the pretense. Yeah, well at this point, it's survival. Like there's no yeah. reason for him what to. The, what the fuck would be the point? Yeah. He's not a professional wrestler and he can't break kayfabe. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, how, how do you think Hulk Hogan would fare in this situation? Not well. You don't think, you don't well. think his... Uh, his stringy blonde hair would help him out. <laughs> he would just keep throwing the N word at the bad yeah, guys. Yeah, and, and having like, it wouldn't it wouldn't sex work. on camera, having sex on camera. It wouldn't it just eating just, pork. 
Or or being cuckolded on camera and just wouldn't yeah. just wouldn't. Well, no, he cuckolded someone else. Oh, he cuckolded someone else. Yeah, I thought he was cuckolded. No, because it was his wife and a radio DJ. No, it was the wife of the radio DJ. Oh, his wife of the radio DJ. Yeah. Ah, okay, allegedly. But yes, no, he wouldn't fare well. Who who do you think the wrestler who would do the best job at being Ken Loney would be? Rowdy Roddy Piper. Okay. Yeah. But he'd just get down there and kick ass. He, that's true. Okay. Never mind. Uh, it would be uh, the Macho Man Randy Savage, just because I want to hear him <laughs> on the radio. <laughs> the, the walls burst open. Oh, yeah. It's like the Kool Aid Man. Yeah. <laughs> just. <laughs> the walls are burst open and everyone's snapping in the Slim Jims. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Miss Elizabeth, you were right. Gotta get into a different field. <laughs> the Slim Jim Choppers. Let me have those kiddos. <laughs> that joke will be funny a little bit later. A little bit later. <laughs> uh, all this is so incredibly brilliant. Mm-hmm. And listening to the commentary, I don't know. This almost feels like an accident in some ways. Sometimes like brilliance happens by accident. Because of uh, the commentary is not particularly useful if you want to know about Pontypool, but very useful if you want to know about their plans, which might still exist for Pontypool 2 and 3, which would be called Pontypool Changes and Pontypool mm-hmm. Changes Everything. Mm-hmm. Great naming scheme. Sure. But it, it sounds like they wanted to do something much more... They they describe the next two movies as more violent and perverse. And, sure, like the uh, book. Distasteful. Mm-hmm. Like so, like, it feels like this is sort of a budget thing where it's like, we're making hey. this because we can't do anything else. We've said repeatedly, I don't know if we've said it on the show, but we've said it repeatedly to each other and just in real life, like, art through adversity makes the best art. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember who said it. Some I, Somebody... Uh, some great artist, uh, some great director that I really respect said, uh, the worst. Mick G. Sure. Yeah. Mick G. The worst thing that can ever happen to a director is that he gets everything he wants. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, so they're like, like we, I mentioned on the show, it blew my mind when I found out that rear window was never supposed to all happen in that one room. Yeah. That was a suggestion from somebody else. And Hitchcock was like, I don't okay. want to do, I don't want to do that. And then a couple days later he was like. That sounded good. We're going to do that. And the same same thing with um, a movie that I love. I, I I used to be a big Tim Burton fan. Of course. And we all I, make mistakes. Sure. And I, I've realized going forward how much of the good parts of his movies are either from other people or sheer accident. Yeah. Like... I love the movie Batman Returns. It's one of my favorites of Burton's movies. But that wasn't even supposed to happen. Michael Keaton just came back to the set <laughs> in the suit. And he's like, Batman Returns. Get me my typewriter. <laughs> and Michael Keaton himself wrote the whole movie. Yep. Uh, that he famously didn't like doing. But yeah, no, he. Uh, I used to think, oh man, see, Burton's, Burton's such a cool artist and he's trying to get out, but he's like being hampered. No. Burton was completely fucking around and had no idea what was going on. Anything brilliant that came out of that movie happened sheerly by accident. The best part of that movie is the plot of the the fact the Penguin's master plan is to kill every firstborn baby in Gotham City. Oh, I really need to watch, rewatch Batman Returns because I don't remember that the Penguin also doubled as King Herod. Right, no, he's... Oh, no, 
the tenth plague, I guess. Right. Yeah. King Herod also killed a bunch of babies. He did. He did. He actually killed a whole bunch of babies. But like, yeah, no, that was his entire plot, and. Uh, that was a last-minute addition. Their original idea was that he was going to use an ice cannon to freeze the world, which, you know, that brilliant idea had to wait until Batman and Robin. Yes. Yeah. Again, all this is so incredibly brilliant. This is the reverse of most horror movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And again, like you said, we never see Ken. No. Ken is just a voice, but we are so intensely invested. Also, all this is happening close to the station. Yes, I th- I think he says that almost immediately when talking to like, oh my god, this is like only a couple of miles from the station. Like yeah. maybe ten miles, I think. Uh, ten, ten minutes, I think he says. But despite all this happening, Laurel, Anne, and Sydney cannot find any official confirmation on the wire mm-hmm. about any of this. Mm-hmm. And... They have a guest. They have a guest. Uh, despite all this chaos, mm-hmm. a local uh, community theater. Yes, they might use the British term Amdram. Okay. Uh, forum, but apparently they're in somewhere in Pontypool or the surrounding area. They're doing a musical version of Lawrence of Arabia. And I just I wrote Lawrence and the Arabians. I wrote down right after just dipping into like the most stressful horror yeah we're right back in wkrp in cincinnati yeah but it and and suddenly like in this becomes an entire bit where like he's like but we gotta get back to this like he, yeah, he, he, grant, grant is grant is the audience he's like what we're doing this yeah we gotta get what it's was that great it's and, great because we feel grant's frustration yeah and like it's he's he's basically but it becomes this bit where he totally becomes dr johnny fever yeah. having to do this horse shit except that he can swear where dr johnny fever could not yeah. being on tv and so he's like in front of these little because like it's a it's like it's a production with a bunch of kids. lawrence and some uh, lawrence is played by tony burgess the writer and oh, author is he? okay yes cool and there are some children in brown face playing oh everyone's in Brit. there's no one who's like racially correct yes and but everyone's in brown face and he's like ah oh, fuck it come on let's do this fucking shit but, but sydney doesn't want grant reporting on the story anymore because they can't confirm it she doesn't right. want to cause a panic yeah and grant has the uh great line as he storms back into the booth let's find out how the fuck rehearsals are going in fucking arabia that's right <laughs> and we hear uh, a song from the the show the nefu desert everyone is dressed up even though it's radio Yes. Because community theater actors are extra as shit. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Wow. The children are in brown face. Uh, also, Osama bin Laden is part of this musical. Osama bin Laden with a fake machine gun And prop. the beard and the turban. This is... I don't remember how the song goes, but I wrote down the line. The food desert is a sand field here. If your camel falls down, it cannot hear. It is a sacred trust to fill it with your blood. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad, but it's also so perfect because it oh, captures yeah. the terrible nature of community theater. Sure. And original shows written by oh, people God. who don't have license and to do those things. In the middle of this, Grant gets like another call on his phone from, from his, his agent. Yep. And he just says... This is Lawrence. He just pulls up his phone and quietly says, "This is Lawrence of Arabia." Pulls it up and like just has them sing it into the phone, and yep. then he goes back. He says, "Fuck you" to his agent. And this is Osama up. bin Laden. This is Osama bin Laden. Yeah, fuck uh, you. So a, a little, fuck you, Rick. A little fun up. thing is Osama bin Laden at the end of the song does a little ululation. The uh, I I'm, can't do it, but the uh, mm-hmm. 
the war cry you hear sometimes. Yes. And Tony Burgess did not know that was a thing. That was an improvised thing by the actor playing Osama bin Laden. Oh. Tony Burgess did not realize that that was like a thing yeah. that people sometimes do and was very yeah. pissed off that like the actor did that. I did not know that when I first saw the movie. Gotcha. I, that was a joke I understood later, uh, which is weird because at first I was just like, hmm, that's kind of like in Cobra when they would yell Cobra la 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 la. Okay. In G.I. Joe. No, I figured. Like, that's, so, in retrospect, makes G.I. Joe the movie way more problematic. So now, and I'll do this last bit, then let's take a break. Sure. So now we get to the third point where I started to get really fucking scared uh, the first time I watched it. Mm -hmm. One of the Bedouin girls is zoning out. Oh, my God. After the song, she starts battling and staring blankly. Something is wrong, but we don't know what. He well, St Steve McCaddy is or Grant Mazzy is 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 sort of wrapping up the segment, and uh, she interrupts him. Yeah. Like she's she's she just has this look a dead look on her face. But at first, you think like, oh, it's just a kid. It's like, just it's a kid. Just she, a kid zoning out. And she's out. saying like, I don't know how it goes. I don't know I, how it ends. I, I can't don't remember how it ends. Is it is it? And she just pop pop. Pop prop 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 It's pop, it's pop, so pop, unnerving pop, and confusing. Pop. Like, even when I watch it again and again, mm -hmm. even though I know what's going on, I'm like, yeah, this hits. This hits mm -hmm. so well. Mm -hmm. This is not traditional horror. It's not body parts falling off or blood or anything. It's just nonsense words, but it's so unsettling. It's so unsettling. It's, it's the, it, yeah. And it's, it's, um. We know that, we know there's something happening outside. Yes. And we know it is causing people to be violent. Mm-hmm. But this isn't violence. This is just a child yeah. babbling. But it seems to be part of it. And it's just the not knowing and the tension and Grant's concern and the fact that it's a child makes us go. The fact that it's a child. The child actor props. Yes. Like, she's good great. work. But like she, uh, she, you can tell that she is genuinely upset and it goes beyond like. I don't know the words to my song yeah. or I'm having trouble memorizing. This is like, there's a deep terror in the child and they cannot communicate it. Yes. And that, the inability to make your, to express, uh, uh, to express yourself correctly is a deeply held human fear. It is. Or, and it's the heart of this film. It is. We talk a lot about the coincidence in language and the double meanings, mm -hmm. but ultimately That's what, all spice on the cake. that's all spice yeah but ultimately and they talk about this in the commentary it starts with not being understood right which adds to the themes of loneliness and isolation right like even even that in that first bit when they're talking back and forth between the booth like he only understands them and she only understands him when she finally comes into the booth with him yes and lays it all out up until then they're just yelling at each other yeah and like constantly being misunderstood and bouncing off of each other and they both see the other one as the enemy yeah i uh just a shout out for tony burgess yeah I didn't care for the book, Pontypool Changes Everything. Sure. But listening to the commentary, he's clearly a very smart man. I agree. Yeah. I, I, even when we when we recorded this episode the first time, you read passages of passages. There of are the some well-written passages in there. And I there just... is some really good shit in that book. I also know that James Joyce was a very intelligent person. Yes. I'm not going to read Ulysses. Someday I will. Although I Someday will say... I will. 
if it ever turns out that uh, the conversation they make a Power Rangers thing, version of Ulysses, no. you would watch that. <laughs> well, of course, but no. The, if if the conversationalists, which we'll not get into yet, but if the conversationalists ever turn out to be real, a real good way of curing yourself of that would be to just try and read Ulysses. Or Finnegan's Wake would even be a better one. Or Finnegan's Wake. One thing I will say, just apropos of nothing, I I was trying to come up with a good way to segue into this. There is none. It just popped into my head. The scene where in the opening, when she Mm -hmm. comes out of the snow and and and, and, and is repeating everything, repeating something under her breath, and he's like, what? I just realized it's the same scene from a different perspective, obviously, and the same horror in my gut that I get from that scene as Twin Peaks The Return in episode 8. Got a light. Oh, yeah. Got a light. Got a light. Like, that, that, it's that same, there's a very similar chord in my brain that that, that is plucked uh, in those two scenes, and I think it is definitely my fear of people. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. <laughs> Okay. But just to end this Farage segment, that's the girl who is yes. uh, who is spacing is out. Is that her name or her character? That's the character's name. Okay. Uh, I, mean, I mean, by in her... Lawrence and the Arabians, she is Farage. Farage. We never, never learned, learned the actress's name. name. Okay. But what's what's also so creepy about this is like mm-hmm. Grant is unsettled. He he's creeped out, but he's mm-hmm. not like super scared. And the yeah. music, the music, is barely noticeable in this film. Yes. Like, I, I didn't take a special notice of it. It's not overbearing. No. It's not like she's she's saying pra, pra, and it's, like, building up behind her. It's It the does mi- what film scores are most of the time supposed to do, which is just add to the scene, but not in a way that you notice it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, next on the line is Steve Van Denzen. Well, first, continuing the theme of miscommunication... After the scene where the little girl was having trouble, uh, he says, "Did you hear what she, what uh, what just happened in here, Sydney?" And she says, "I know, I know, it was bad." Thinking he's talking about the music, yeah. And he keeps saying about like how unnerved he was about the problem that just happened mm-hmm. in there, and she keeps misinterpreting everything he says as being a complaint about the fact that he had to do the segment. Yeah, and it again, happens like three times in a row. And again, reinforcing the isolation and loneliness. He's in the booth. When when he's in the booth and she's out there, nothing that he says communicates to her. No. And that's not... Sidney Breyer is never painted as like a bitch. No. Or bad at her job or someone who's like shitty to Grant. She's trying to do her job as the producer of a local radio show. And they're different people with different life experiences and different goals of what they yeah. want to get out of this job that they're doing i just wanted to point it out because it would be very easy to make sydney a bitch character oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah like um uh uh one of those stereotypical sort of chris pratt and jurassic world situations yes. where like he's he's kind of a douche but he's a cool douche and she's just a bitch and yeah he, she's got to be taught a lesson about how to be cool by the cool douche no yeah. uh, again sydney smokes pot she yeah. uh she she has a good relationship with Laurel Ann. She's she's mm-hmm. very accommodating to Grant. Yeah, like she's she very keeps accommodating went to Laurel Ann too. Laurel- when she comes into the booth, she's always very soothing. Yeah, it's like I, I know you wanted to follow the story. As soon as we get confirmation, <laughs> you can do it, and you can do your take no prisoners thing. You, you can do your take no prisoners. She's she's very much like. Uh, 
a mom with yeah <laughs> just sort of like yeah i know i know you eat three more peas eat three, eat three more, more peas, peas and we can do your we can have your pie you can you can you can run around with the, the towel tied around your neck if you really want she has you this can great... crawl into the plastic bag <laughs> She has this great bit where she's like, I like your mazziness. I want your mazziness. I hired you for your mazziness. <laughs> I just need you to ease into the mazziness. Ease into the mazziness a little bit, which is a great direction. So next on the line is a, an apparent eyewitness, Steve Van Denzen, mm-hmm. but it's just shouting on the other end. Yes. Another great bit. The intensity is ramping up. Sydney is stressed and confused, but still skeptical. Mm-hmm. Maybe just because she wants it to not be real. Mm-hmm. She needs it to not be real because mm-hmm. this is Pontypool and crazy things shouldn't happen in a small town like this. A Laurel Ann is also getting phone calls from people who are just repeating things over and over again mm-hmm. or mumbling on the line. And they still can't reach Ken. Still can't reach Ken. Grant says that the crowd is speaking in bizarre ways. Well, he gets he gets a report and it, the report begins with this line. It's one of my favorite lines in the entire movie. I forget it almost every time until I watch it again. But whenever it comes in, it just it hits something in my brain it, that just feels good. It makes my brain go burr. Actually, before that. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll get to jumping that. Ahead? Okay. We're jumping a little bit ahead. Okay, I'll wait. They, and because I made the same note. Mm-hmm. They speak with the cop, Bob Roseland, first, mm. who talks about how early in the morning a crowd gathered around the Golden Dawn facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, worth noting that the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was an occult group in the late 19th century. Hmm. The crowd was trying to get to an old woman's room, and they were repeating the stuff she was saying. She, It's a retirement facility. She's senile. She's talking about Hitler, and it's the ramblings of a senile dying woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here's where we start to realize that something is wrong with Laurel Ann. We keep getting told, and this is all visual. The actress is doing a great job. Like She's not like, Oh, Sydney, I don't feel well. Or mm-hmm. it, it's just, there's little in her expressions. Something is off. Yeah. And now here's where Grant rep- reports on a herd of people. But and I love the stop. Like he just says, it's a herd. Pause. That's the way it's being described, folks. Yes. A herd of people. Something about the describing a herd of people and the way that he delivers that the way it's written chills me to the bone it's perfect it's absolutely perfect yeah and again you're right this movie is all dialogue Mm -hmm. so word choice is so important it's incredibly important it's again theater yeah absolutely theater it's not a group Mm -hmm. not a mob a herd Mm -hmm. animalistic Mm -hmm. we hear and it again it just keeps being chilling because this herd of people surrounded a family in their car, mm-hmm. a couple and their two children, and they were buried under a mountain. He Again, he repeats the word, a mountain of people. And Sydney tells him that they were imitating windshield wipers. Not, not with their body, with their mouth. With their they mouth. Were, they were imitating the noise of windshield wipers, like a, like, like a, like a mockingjay. Yes. And... If you're a good movie watcher, your mind is just spinning, mm-hmm. imagining this mountain of people that came from this herd, yeah, burying this car, going. God, God, fucking damn! It. It's so. Again, we just keep saying it's amazing, but it yeah. is like it's, it is. 
there's a disease or not a disease, but there's a condition that you can have where your mind just can't make pictures. Okay. I wonder if this movie is as enjoyable for people no picture like that. brainy. Is that what it's called? <laughs> no picture brainy. Yeah. No, they just like they don't have visual uh, things in their in their head. That would suck, and I'm sure this movie would not be as enjoyable. But who knows? Yeah. I wonder if just like because because like they're described things all the time in their yeah. life. I'm sure. I wonder if having that description is enough for them not having to to see it in their brain. Well, when I my brain immediately starts creating pictures the minute you tell me anything. Gotcha. Yeah. I am not a visual thinker very much. Like when I read a mm-hmm. book, I'm not painting pictures in my mind. Okay. I'm just looking at words and processing them. Okay. So, and I still enjoy reading. Yeah, I don't no, do it as no, much the anymore, people but with this condition can still read yeah, just like No, you were yeah, they can about. read. They're yeah. not fucking blind. Right. Yeah. <sighs> If you had a condition... Just, the way that this was described to me is like, picture a Target. Gotcha. They can't do that. No. Yeah. A Target store. Yeah, a, right. tar- a Target store. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Picture uh, Billy Target, this rocker I just... This <laughs> rocker alter ego I just made up for you. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Billy Target, the villain from Daredevil. Oh, <laughs> that's what he's called, right? <laughs> Billy Target. Billy yeah. Target. Yeah. <laughs> it's my... <laughs> oh. That's my favorite Collie Farrell character. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, the man who hires Billy Target, uh, Large McCrime Boss. <laughs> Large McCrime Boss, the bowling champion. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Whether it's uh, Michael Clark Duncan or Vincent D'Onofrio, yes. Large McCrime Boss is one of the iconic. <laughs> on-screen villains with his presence with his present with his bag of presents he brings to all yep. the children <laughs> now i know this is uh, i know we're calling this a present but we both know that this is a contract <laughs> if i give you this you have to be good don't embarrass me now so next, the Christmas episode of Daredevil was the best one. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Murdock gets shown life, what life would be like if he could see. He doesn't learn anything from it. It's just cruel. It's just needlessly cruel. Well, no, he realizes he's better off not having sight because he has oh. his powers that he can save people. Oh, okay. okay. Instead of just being a regular shithead. <laughs> Uh, so next, the BBC calls Grant because he is at the center of what's happening. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the news has spread to the world. Something is going on in Ontario. And suddenly they're talking to a BBC reporter on their show, but also on their on show. On his show. Yeah. Yeah. It it becomes, there's a lot of recursion. Uh, he was complaining about. Grant was complaining about being small time, and now he's on a world stage. And you can tell that, like, he is completely taken aback by this. Like, at first, yes. when the guy's like, no, on with Grant Mazzy. You know, all BBC reporters sound the same. Now, on with Grant Mazzy. Now, Grant, what seems to be... We've, we've had reports that there's the, the National Guard has been called in, and what's going on down there? And Grant is just like, like, deer in the headlights, like, uh... uh. <laughs> I want to point out that the correspondent's name is Nigel Healing. More confused language. Nigel Healing, the name Nigel Healing, and also the phrase with the verb 
Nigel is healing someone. Mm-hmm. Nigel, Nig- Nigel asks about roadblocks that have been set up. Grant denies it. Nigel says it's clear that an insurgency is gathering. And all the while, Sydney's like, I don't think he knows what he's talking about, mm-hmm. even though this is the fucking BBC. She needs it to not be real. Well, I think... I think he actually doesn't know what he's talking about, though, because he's talking about terrorist cells and stuff like that. Well, I don't know a lot about Canadian history, and mm-hmm. granted, Quebec has had some terrorist stuff. Sure. But this is Ontario. I don't... Maybe he's just no, I making think, painting with broad swaths. But we know that this is not a terrorist attack. We do, yeah. but we're watching a horror movie. Nigel Healing is in the real world where right. zombie outbreaks don't happen. Yeah, but I think I think that the uh part of the point of the scene is yeah, some some of the things that he says are correct. Like the like we find out later the roadblocks, yes. Like travel in and out of Pontypool has been And we already shut know that down. the military has been called in. Yes, we already know that the military has that the military at least uh on a local level is is there. Uh, but the I think a lot of what he says, aside from that, is it's he's he's spitballing. He's like yeah. he's he's tr- he's trying to he's doing exactly what Grant Massey was doing earlier. He's making shit up and like trying to like free associate with the elements that we do know. But nothing that he says, like you're saying, we already knew the military was there. Yeah, nothing that he says is stuff that except for the roadblock things that Grant Massey didn't already know. Okay. And at the end, when Grant basically says, we don't really know what's going on, yeah. he sp- even spins out, there you have it, clearly a lot of questions going on in Pontypool yeah. and all that. But the best part is when he signs off with that Grant shitty little bitch that he is, <laughs> turns it around and is like, that was our affiliate station, BBC. <laughs> Oh, and again, Stephen McCaddy has such control of his voice. Mm-hmm. I'm so he's done some voice acting. Has he? Yeah, uh, I think he was actually in some Justice League. That's awesome. Who, who did he play? I, I, need to, I do I'm not recall. This up Go and look it up. Yeah, he has such control of his voice. He should be bigger in that arena too. At least he should be doing audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Well, it's again like his in his performance in the one episode of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine that he was in. Uh, he just he's only in two scenes. He's in the scene he's in the scene where he's he he pronounces that it's a fake. And before that, he's uh he has a single scene where he and Sorry. That's all right. Where he and Captain Cisco are sitting there just talking about politics and wine and everything. And he's just Completely different character from Grant Mazzy, obviously, yeah. but he's just like sitting there like a Roman emperor, like being like, "This wine is so smooth," and like just like being, he's so fucking good every time yeah, he shows up. Yeah, he's amazing. I'm gonna take a brief break while you look up something. Go right ahead to talk about the character of Grant Mazzy in the book because Grant is one of the few things to make it from the book to the screen, aside from the elements of what's going to happen which we're still not totally into and mm-hmm. grant mazzy in the book grant mazzy works at a television station not a radio station oh and he's a little bit more big time mm-hmm. but he's like a sexual predator gross and like he preys on the young interns and stuff oh the shade 
That's right, the shade. Well, he was good. I'm sure he was. <laughs> he's a very minor character because he's because Stephen McCaddy can't get a fucking break. No, but he does have several very memorable moments, including uh, most of his bit is that he is just really in love with Giganta. Wonderful. And I like he, a tall lady too. He finds out that's mainly. I like thing. a lady you could build a treehouse in. <laughs> that's mainly his or thing. Or on. Is... I don't want to build it inside of her. <laughs> It's mainly his thing is how big she is. And then he finds out that she used to be an ape and was turned human. And there's a bit where he's where he gets shocked. He looks over at her and she winks at him and he, and he's like, fine with it. <laughs> if she's a lady now, she's a lady now. That's all that matters. Right. They can't prosecute you for that. <laughs> they actually can't prosecute you for that. No, it's, no, it's written it's, in the Constitution. It's in the Constitution. <laughs> that was like Ben Franklin was insistent. That's not if, even a, a, if an orangutan <laughs> turns into a, a giant lady <laughs> and you have fornication on her, you cannot be sent to jail. <laughs> that was... Not even an amendment. That was in the original text that was, yeah. of the Constitution. And yes, absolutely, Benjamin Franklin put it in there. He would. Total Ben Franklin move. We Ben Franklin went a lot more about ape turned into hot lady fucking <laughs> in the Constitution <laughs> and in the Declaration of Independence. Like, he wanted it to be a... He's like, the turkey's the national bird, mm-hmm. and if a, and if an ape turns into an attractive lady, you should be allowed to have sex with them. You should. You should. We the people, ape fucker or no. <laughs> oh, it's a big tent. <laughs> it's a big tent. So now we get into my favorite one-two punch of the film, mm-hmm. and where I feel like it, it really peaks. Mm-hmm. Ken's back on the line. Of course. Ken's desperately trying not to cry. Mm-hmm. And Rick Roberts is just fucking slaughtering this. He is so mm-hmm. damn good. Mm-hmm. Ken ru- has run into a grain silo. He has the great line. I've seen things today that are going to ruin the rest of my natural life. And again, like... How evocative is that? That's a beautiful line, but it feels like something someone would actually say. It does. And in the way that we're saying it, we're saying it with all this reverence because it's yeah. a great line and a great movie that we love. Like, and also, we're I'm, not trying to. I'm not trying to act it like right. I could. We're gonna say like this is something's gonna ruin the rest of my natural life. Uh, it's again, it's this movie walks that line between theatricality and 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 uh, uh, relatability. Yeah, I can't really say realism, but like relatability so well that like that line is both theatrical and also completely reasonable. Absolutely. I would absolutely say that if I had seen the shit that he'd seen. Yeah. I would almost say that word for word, but like not intentionally off of a script just because that's what I would, what the words that would come to me. Ken is barely making sense. He, he can't, he can barely describe what he's seeing. We get fragments uh, Ken is watching the mob bite somebody, carrying the people to the ground with their mouths. One of them heard Ken. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to say something? The I just wanted to quickly say the I I being the fool that I am, I did not write down exactly what he says there about carrying the people down to the the mouths. But they 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 essentially they they eat this person. Yeah. The description, the way it's described in the movie how they eat this person 
is the most terrifying and visceral description of eating someone I have ever heard in my life. What? It's, there is something about it that is, I have seen Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead. I love all those movies. I've never been so upset by a zombie kill as the one that I don't get to see in this movie. Yeah, no, it's it's horrifying. But one of the people, here's Ken. Mm-hmm. Mary Galt's boy, mm-hmm. uh, the teenage son of Mary Galt. And, of course, it's such a small town. You can say Mary Galt. Ken knows who it is. Sydney knows who it is. Uh, half the people listening probably know who it is. He says her big, big boy. Her big boy mm-hmm. has come crashing through the wall, injuring himself. Mm-hmm. Mary Galt's boy is whispering something, and Ken gets closer. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the broadcast is interrupted by a French emergency message. Right. Saying for... Right right in the when the audience is yes. literally at the edge of their seat, all the characters are at the edge of their seat, it blares through. What? And like just RIP headphone users, and everyone just like, what? This is an excellent... Just It's like playing a fish, just... Reel them in, let out the slack. One of the best jump scares in cinema. <laughs> and this is not a jump scare movie. No, absolutely. This it's, is its jump scares, right? Well, this and when the hand goes on the window in yes. the opening, those are the two jump scares. Though you get two, but it's not music jump scares. No, it's it's diegetic sound jump scares. Mm-hmm. The message says that for your safety, please avoid close contact with family members. Restrain from the following: all terms of endearment rhetorical discourse and for greater safety please avoid the english language it says all of this in french oh and also do not translate this message yes it says all of this in french and uh laurel uh, laurel Laurel ann thank you laurel ann uh works hard to translate she can't figure it out first she thinks she's getting it wrong she's like this is all gibberish yeah because obviously this is a weird thing that is being said to them but she translates it she 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 puts it out. She she sends it into Grant, and Grant reads it at. And as he's reading, do not translate this message. He gets slower on that line. He's like, yeah. "Oh shit, what did we do?" <laughs> it's it's brilliant. Which, to be fair, they should have put that at the beginning. Yes, <laughs> they should. Why they, they should. put that at the end? Because it's a government thing, right? Of course, they're not thinking. Of course. Uh, Sydney also gets a message that the poli- from the police that Pontypool is under quarantine. Mm-hmm. So if there were no roadblocks before, there definitely are now. And now Ken is back. And this is the moment that hits me the hardest this one in is this fucked film. Up. This, this one is, is up. where I was just chilled to the core. The movie peaks at this point for me. Mm-hmm. He's interviewing Mary Galt's big teenage boy. Body broken to pieces. Almost inaudible, in a baby's voice, he's saying, Help me, Mama. Slowly getting louder and more distorted. So high-pitched. The camera, by the way, while we're hearing this, is on Steve McCaddy's face. If it were any closer to Steve McCaddy's head, he'd have to be making out with it, or it'd have to be inside his ear canal. Yes. It is like... In there, and, and he you're... is engrossed. He is. He is. It's not like he's doing a lot of twitchy movements, but no face acting is such a subtle art. Uh, yeah, especially when he's... the camera's that close to you. Yeah, 
and he's just he's just fucking killing it. He's mm-hmm. and I have to wonder how they did this if they had this a recording playing on set mm-hmm. or if he was just being given direction by Bruce McDonald or how this worked. Whatever he's doing, it's a fucking masterclass. Part of why it's so disturbing is disturbing on its own. Just you describing that, I'm upset. <laughs> uh, but uh, the it is also him. Like, his performance makes it so much more upsetting. Yes. Because he's so upset. Yeah. And you, like, at this point, uh, Grant Mazzy has been such a... He's such he's so his own character. He's not like a cipher like no. Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter. He's not an everyman. He's not an everyman. He's his own character. But you have gotten into the headspace of him as an audience member since he is also an audience member yeah. to this movie. Uh, at that point, that you feel his upsetness with him, and it it, it heightens your own uh, tension and fear. In it reminds moment. me of one of my favorite quotes from Mulholland Drive. Sure. During the Winkies Diner scene, my favorite scene in the film. Sure. Where Patrick Fishler says to his companion, mm-hmm. "I'm scared," and then I see how scared you are, and I get more scared. There you go. That's, it's, that's it's the, the same thing. philosophy. It's, a, it's the whole thing. The line that scares me the most while Ken is giving this brilliant fucking monologue mm-hmm. is it sounds like there's a child screaming inside his breath. And I believe they lose Ken again at this point. I believe that they And Grant is starting to lose it. Extreme close up. He's confused. He starts to hear something, and I've never been able to make out what he hears in this moment. I believe this is... They talk about this in the commentary. I believe this is the point where he was supposed to be looking down under his desk. Yes, And there would be a tiny eight-inch man in a fishing hut talking about the earlier incident. Like, there are people with guns, and that is what he's reacting to. An eight-inch man? Like a hallucination, like a... I thought that he was hallucinating... Because the only other explanation would be that he would be becoming a conversationalist, which would not match up with what we find out about the yes. conversationalist later. Which is, by the we'll mention that, they are not zombies in this film. They are conversationalists. Yes. Which uh, is a great name. Now, I will say, something I forgot about this movie is that uh, it came out in 2008, as you yes. said. 2008, for those who might not remember or maybe weren't around at the time or just weren't paying attention was a huge time for zombie movies. Yes. This was in the wake of the Dawn of the Dead remake. Mm -hmm. We had Shaun of the Dead not long before that. We were choking on zombie movies. Mm -hmm. Around the the time the Max Brooks zombie survival guide came out. Right. On the DVD for this movie, there is a trailer for a way worse zombie movie called Dead Snow. Right. Which also takes place in in a winter setting, but utilizes it. Uh, way less and way less effectively. This movie is so good and it's so its own thing. Even if I didn't know that the filmmakers didn't consider it a zombie movie and consider yeah. the, the, the monsters to be conversationalists instead of zombies, uh, I would... I don't normally think of it as a zombie movie anyway. No, I don't. It's so its own thing. But like, when it came out, it was... They had to market it somehow. Right. And and uh, I when my roommate showed the movie to me, 
what I the genre I mentioned, he was a big fan of the zombie craze. Gotcha. And he would like do kind of what we do, except specifically with zombie movies sort through all the crap to try and find the nuggets yeah and you would find oh man i found the a gr- nuggets of crap the nuggets of crap and he's like i found a real i found a, some real great meat in the middle of this gristle yeah let me show you this before i go away and go away I, to heaven go away to heaven yeah he died that night no. uh but i don't uh rem- i fully forgot that that's how i was introduced to this movie because it's so there is no like oh dawn of the dead pontypool uh day yeah. of the dead it's just like there are zombie movies, there are Frankenstein movies, Dracula movies. And then uh, there's Pontypool. And then there's just fucking Pontypool. Pontypool is its own fucking thing. It is no it is no other genre of anything. Again, like I said before, it's pure horror. It, it yes. defies genre because it's distilled mm-hmm. so purely. And yet at the same time, when you have a giant crowd of people, semi-cannibalistic, mindless, putting their open palms against yeah. something, bursting walls open, it's hard not to think about zombies it's a zombie movie yeah it, it is a zombie movie right we can play around with our pretension all we yeah want. it's still a zombie movie i just think the conversationalist is a neat name for the monster it is neat and it is also unlike any zombie movie you will a unique see. virus should have a unique name sure sure uh nigel healing is still on the bbc he's talking about the honey the cat poster which people are apparently carrying around I missed that bit. Yeah. Hmm. Sydney tries to get through to Grant, telling him about the poster. Grant has a great... She says, Nigel Healing said apparently, and Grant interrupts her and says, Nigel Healing said apparently, can you fucking hear yourself? Well, first, uh, he brings his head out from up from underneath the desk. With, yes. What? And I've never seen a human being open their eyes wider. He does great eye work. Than he Stephen has, McCaddy in this moment. It's not like he has big eyes. They're just so expressive. He he just he he looks like he's about to go rabid in yeah. that moment. And then he yeah, and he gets he gets out. Call of the, him Eminem because he's losing himself. <laughs> he gets out of the booth and they start having this altercation. Yes, but I I just love language is becoming more warped as Grant tries to understand it more, mm-hmm. and that's the basis of the virus is there's a misunderstanding and you struggle. We've all been in the situation where it's like. Oh, I fucked up in what I said, mm-hmm. so I'm going to try to use more words to fix it, and that's just making things worse. Right. And again, I, I, t- I as I said, the moment that he gets out of the booth, one of the most significant moments when he gets out of the booth is is this scene, and it's very telling why he gets out of the booth. He's he's fully started to understand that there is something like truly Lovecraftianly horrible happening. Yes. Uh, and he is like, I gotta get out, and so he gets mm-hmm. out of the booth. I he's wanna... still in the box. He's still in the basement. He's still so, in the studio. So he's got to get out of there, and then he's got to get out of the building, and he's got to get out of the snow, and he's just like, he's he's it's he's having a fucking panic attack. I need to get out, out, out. And yeah. he's like, the more that they try and drag him back in, he's like, you're fucking with me. You're fucking with you're me. All fucking with me. Yeah. Don't fuck with my head. I, I want to point out a few things in between all that. Yeah. One, Laurel Ann, God bless her heart, engineered to the last, yes. is still concerned about dead air. Yes, she turns she, around she, like, we have crickets. Yeah. While so, Grant is trying to get out of So, Sydney has her play the piece about Honey the Cat, which mm-hmm. probably makes things a lot worse. Probably. Because there's also broadcasting 
the broadcast outside the studio on a loudspeaker. Yes. So as you said, Grant tries to leave. Grant is concerned that he was the cause, that somehow because of the Honey the Cat stuff, Mm -hmm. that he is somehow responsible. And he says, I need to know that there's more happening to everyone than what's happening to just me. Again, this isolation, this loneliness. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I didn't even think about that. He he goes out of the box and he's still in a fucking basement. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the big things, as I talked about, the start is a very small movie, and they mm-hmm. worked outward. A lot of the conversations that Tony Burgess and Bruce McDonald had is like, how much do we show? How much can we? So there was, we see shots of the loudspeaker outside, and they're like, can we show that, or is that going too far outside our box? Right, yeah. Uh, in it's the, a legitimate question when you're making a movie like so this. So we don't see a lot of outside. Which is good. Grant Grant is snapping. He tries to leave. Mm-hmm. Sydney says, don't walk out on me, Grant, please. I need you again. Just we're folding in on the loneliness and isolation of these yeah. people. We learned that Sydney's divorced. Uh, mm-hmm. She, her children are not with her. Are not with They're They're not even in, in the city. Ottawa. They're, yeah. they're, they're Ontario. They're yeah. They're, they're in a, in, a, in another place. And I, and, and uh, yeah, going back to like, like I, I need to make sure this is, isn't just happening to me. Like, yeah. When I feel like we all, We've had very real experiences we all have with this, with the pandemic. With yeah. like, like it just, you're just sort of trapped inside with yourself and you feel like you almost feel like this whole pandemic is just happening to you because mm-hmm. you're just there without being able to interact with anybody else. And it's, it's, uh, I, I've always liked this movie, never fully related to Grant in this scene more than this time watching it in previous times watching it i always kind of felt like this was a little bit staged oh okay i like, always just i always this, loved it i always felt like this scene was a bit stagey like he's like ah, eh, they just need him to get up to the top of the stairs so they can do a thing but no i i now fully understanding having better understanding of like isolation yeah that i now have having lived it like i i understood a lot more like what he was dealing with here yeah definitely yeah uh they all take a look outside laurel ann pushes everyone back inside grant says he doesn't see anything yes but laurel ann veteran that she is mm-hmm. pushes them all back inside because she spots the enemy she even yeah she even like starts going like militaristic she, she refers to them as the enemy and she starts referring to grant and sydney as sir she's called sydney oh she's about to call sydney sir but yeah 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 which she, she has not been doing that the rest of the movie uh she the rest of the movie she just called them by their names when suddenly action is going on she snaps into a different mode and i love it so much sure. i love this character it's like very she's so realistic. multifaceted she up until now she's like even though we know she's a veteran she sort of gives off a stoner vibe she's dressed a bit punky she just seems um, like uh, the, the girl next door sure like yeah I, and she even like she they they talk about her being like a homecoming hero. she was at the fall parade or whatever she was the homecoming hero and grant even says like when he introduces the the fact that she is a veteran he mentions it like it's a news to me like this is a big all of you probably know this yeah but and they do all know this as we find out but like he but to him this is like a big surprise and to the audience is a big surprise too because she just doesn't come across that way yeah she's not played as like overtly butch or anything like most dumb movies tend to write no veterans are she's just a person who happens to have been in the military 
conversationless outsider repeating Sydney's words, which freaks her out. Mm-hmm. Sydney begins to fall apart, and now it's Grant's turn to help her. Mm-hmm. He's like, let's get back to the booth. Let's get back to the booth. And the way they reset mm-hmm. is the incredibly chilling. They decide, here's what we need. Obituaries. We gotta go do the obits segment. And I don't know how they get this news, but this is, again... Uh, this is this second is one of the to Ken Loney's less realistic moments in the movie, but like it doesn't matter because shit's breaking matter. down. They re- the creators really tried to cultivate a sense of like, is this happening? Is it not happening? Sure. Which is not an aspect of the film that I'm interested in. I, I take it at I face value. I don't think it's needed in this. Film. It's not. It's I don't really think it's not necessary. I think that there there's a there's a version of this movie. Okay, so I mentioned that like. The opening of this movie is the opening of a night gallery episode. Mm. I was being literal. There is a night gallery episode that's literally about a DJ, a big city DJ who's been lost his job because of shenanigans, and yeah. he's brought to like a, a little podunk station in the middle of nowhere by his agents. Like this is the only job I could get you, and he goes there, and it's like there is a sort of element of like he's hearing things, and is like, is this real? Is this not yeah. real? Now because night gallery is. A very dumb show. Mm-hmm. Good show. Dumb show. Every um, episode, it's so dumb, and it made Rod Serling so dumb. <laughs> and like in the middle of episodes, they'll cut to him like trying to eat the paintings. <laughs> and like there's a there's a PA with a broom being like, "No, Rod, get <laughs> no. off!" Just poking him with a not food. He's like, Rear. Then he drinks a Schlitz beer and smokes a cigarette. At the end of the episode, it just turns out. This radio station's run by the devil! Oh. And that's the whole thing. I feel like he has better things to do. This movie is like if you have the setup and the arc of a Night Gallery episode, but with the plot concept concept of a Twilight Zone episode. Mm. Uh, and it, it has the, the brilliance of a Twilight Zone plot, but with the, the horror element of, of Night Gallery. But... What the hell was my point? Oh I yeah, but like in in that night gallery episode, the idea of like what's real, what isn't, like what's going on, that works for that. Sure. This the concept of what's going on outside is so interesting. You don't need that shit. It's not more interesting if you're questioning whether it's real or not. It's just no. You don't need that wrinkle. Yeah. Honestly, in, in I I don't remember who said this. Some sci-fi writer uh, said. Focus on one thing. Yeah. Focus on making the audience believe one ridiculous thing at a time. And don't, like, like another thing that we compared to Twilight Zone, Vivarium. Yes. So many fucking things. A lot of things. Uh, just do one. Just do one thing. And that's what this movie does. And it does amazing. And we don't need to talk about Vivarium. No, we talked about episode. Vivarium. Uh, the obituaries... It's another Grant monologue accompanied by black and white photos of normal-ass-looking people. Yeah. He is not just talking about all the obituaries are recent, extremely recent, caused by this event. And it's not just people who are killed. It also He also lists the people that they killed. Yes. And it's it's haunting. And I there is a another great quote, which I do not remember who said it. He said that it's almost impossible to do an anti-war movie... Yes, uh, because the, all war films glorify war in some way. In some way, because it's inherently exciting. Yeah. This movie, which I do believe is talking about war... Uh, you think so? I do actually think it is talking about war. I'll get into that a little bit more but later. But he, 
one of the things about zombies that makes them difficult as a horror concept is that zombies are cool. Yes. Like there's an el- if you're a horror fan and you like gross things, like there's an element that's always going to be like, look at the cool shit Tom Savini can do. Yeah. There's always like you watch Day of the Dead and the the zombies walking around with no jaw and the tongue just sort of like going around it's like they had to rig a mechanical tongue. That's it's not, so neat. It's not oh my god the horrors of flesh. Right. It's, it's like that's oh my a god, cool effect. That's so neat. Uh and by doing it this way, so that you never you don't see any of the zombies, at least up until now, and you just all you see are these still not stills, but like images of people and hearing about their relationships between each other, yes, and all the people that they loved that they killed. It it you watch Dawn of the Dead. You are sad when you see the characters that you've grown to like over the course of the film turn into zombies. Yeah. But there's all these like horde of other zombies that you don't give a shit about, and it's fun to watch them get decapitated. But this makes this makes them people. This makes the entire horde of zombies people. Because you're any Grant is not descriptive. He just says No, uh, it's an open segment. It'd be like uh Sal Lombardo went on to end the lives of so and so age whatever, so and so age whatever. Yeah. It's but you see their faces, and you see, you see their faces in the context that they lived in, on the farm that they yeah, worked at. Yeah, you don't see like the their store, corpses; you it, just see them as regular people. And the store that they worked at, like it, it they, it's them in their context with their loved ones. And it's young and old people, like it's children. Like they mentioned, uh, people as young as twelve died. It's the again, it manages to communicate the horror of a zombie apocalypse in a way that no other movie ever has yeah uh, the closest thing i can think of is maybe world war z that puts it into a more personal and human in the, uh, in the book human not sent- the brad pitt yeah. movie yeah i want to point out that during the obits it ends with the mention of some drummonds which is our laurel ann's last name mm. it's never it's never said like they're related to her but with as small a town as it is they probably are and i imagine i like to think headcanon mm-hmm. that increased Laurel Ann's dissociation from reality mm-hmm. causing what we're about to see. Laurel Ann is infected. Yeah. She's not making sense. She's repeating words. Well, she's, she's wrapping up, uh, uh Sydney, Sydney has a cut. She's wrapping her up with a bandage and, uh, she makes a crack about like, uh, did Sydney says, did anything this crazy ever happen in, in Afghanistan? And Sydney said... Laurel Ann. Laurel Ann, sorry. Laurel Ann says something about bringing the war back in her head. Which makes sense to me, but Sydney does not understand it. Mm-hmm. And this is... We've seen Laurel Ann acting quite, kind of squirrely up until now. Mm-hmm. But here's where the misunderstanding really causes the infec- infection to take place. Yes. And uh, it takes hold with the word missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, she starts saying that Mazzy is missing. When Sydney is like, he's in the booth. He's not missing. Uh, she say missing is in not here because her brain is stuck on the word missing. Mm-hmm. So maybe by clarifying what missing means, she can clarify what she means. But all it does is highlight to her how much that didn't make sense. Yes. And her continuing to interrogate the meaning of the word missing and search for that meaning 
is what only continues to make it take hold, and I never fully grasped the mechanics and how well laid out the mechanics of this process are laid out in yes. the scene until this viewing. Yeah, this is a great scene, and mm -hmm. now we get to what might be my favorite bit of sound editing in a film ever. Mm. There's a tea kettle on heat in the background. Mm -hmm. uh, Laurel Ann walks away. Mm -hmm. The tea kettle begins to whistle, and Sydney removes it from the heat, mm -hmm. but the sound persists, but it's sort of different. And Sydney looks over, and Laurel Ann is staring blankly into space, imitating the sound of the tea kettle. Mm-hmm. It's fucking beautiful. It's so fucking terrifying. And immediately my brain just went to, uh, uh, doctor, the, 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 the tape stopped five minutes ago. Are you my mummy? I'm oh, here now. Yeah. <laughs> One of yeah. Brad's, Brad's favorite episode. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Probably, that is probably my favorite episode of Dr. Who. I love mm -hmm. Chris Eccleston. Yeah. We talk, we have grilled tree sandwiches. Most days. <laughs> you and Chris Eccleston? Yeah, he, he flies over from uh, the UK. Are you excited that he's doing Big Finish now? What the fuck is Big Finish? Oh, uh, Big Finish is the Oh, the, uh, the, the audio The books. audio dramas. Yeah. yeah, he's finally doing them. I don't care for Doctor Who. I'm just a big Chris fan. <laughs> I just, like... Right. I send yeah, his yeah, kids yeah. money for their birthdays. Right, yeah. A couple thousand dollars. You know, grilled cheese buddy. That's yeah. A, that's a special level He of spends buddy. a lot of money taking the Concord, which doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> Over to my house every day. Just for him. Just, just for yeah, him. It ju yeah. He bought it. It exists for it's him. like, I need to get to my buddy as fast as I could in 1992 <laughs> to have a grilled cheese sandwich, or as they say in England, a sandwo. <laughs> a sandwo. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm a bit of a tiaboo. <laughs> what? It's like a weeaboo, but with British culture. Oh, a tiaboo. A tiaboo. Have you never heard that phrase? I've heard anglophile. Okay. <laughs> well, Gen Z has flipped the script. Tiaboo. That's hilarious. So now, Dr. John Mendez crawls in through the window. Yes. Bringing the exposition train with him. So here's an, a really awesome thing about the actress Georgina Riley, who plays Laurel Ann. Mm-hmm. Laurel Ann showing signs of the disease was one of the audition pieces for oh. the character. Georgina Riley, great actress that she is, mm -hmm. asked what the words meant to the character. And there are three levels to what she's doing. There's the thing she meant to say, mm -hmm. the thing she said, and how she reacts to what she said as opposed to what she is meant to say. Yes. So she asked like for a translation of the dialogue into actual Laurel Ann thoughts. That's brilliant. That's yeah. perfect. That's perfect. Absolutely. Oh so Tony Burgess wrote a second set of dialogue that was what she was saying in her head. That's, oh my God. Yeah. I love that so it's fucking much. fucking brilliant. That's oh the way, God. that's, that I, if they had given the part to anybody else other <laughs> than her, no, that's that's a that's a real actor right there. That like, is putting that fucking work in, which makes it so frustrating that she's not bigger and more things because yeah. she is, she's doing the fucking work. Absolutely, she's not Brad Pitt just eating some chips. Yeah, no, Brad Pitt refusing to shower, eating chips, and wandering around in CGI wasteland. I mean, honestly, that's my heaven. <laughs> yeah, but it's not like you're doing. No, a I don't. Job. I don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, it, but... It, you could do that in your off hours. I do do that in my off hours. 
I have a green screen, right? And I have After Effects. Yeah, a whole and bunch I of just, potato chips in. Yep, and just, I get like, refusing a to bag of middles worth. I don't shower for eight days a week because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm a big Beatles fan. <laughs> but uh, that's what that song is about. Not yeah. showering for eight days a week. Yep. Uh, Ringo is like, I wish there was one more day I didn't get to shower. <laughs> So Dr. John Mendez and Sydney go into the sound booth. Grant refers to him as the building that exploded, which I a detail I love, more twisting mm-hmm. of the language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Laurel Ant stands outside the booth and tries to get in, scared and confused. Again, tying back to uh, their them skirting the line between making sure that there's no way you can enjoy this in the way that some people enjoy zombie movies. Yeah. You have to be scared of it. You can't enjoy it. The only zombie that we've been able to see so far is a character that we have been programmed to like yeah. so much. She's such a sweet character. She's so nice. And she's the zombie. And this is so much the reverse of what a lot of low-budget horror does, where they try mm-hmm. to make you hate all the characters, right. so that when they become kill fodder, yeah. you're like, yay! But right. you're generally that to... just makes for an annoying cast of characters. Right. And even if it does work out for some reason, it's the, the idea in that is you're just supposed to enjoy the violence. In this movie violence is never good. Yeah. It's never something to be enjoyed. It is only something to be feared and be upset by. Yes. And it's one of the most effective movies of pulling that hat trick I've ever seen. And because the cast is so small, the stakes are so high. Right. Right. And eventually Laurel Ann comes back. She begins banging her head on the glass. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. John Mendez talks about how she needs a victim Mm -hmm. and she's rooting for voices. Ken calls back. He's still in the grain silo. Mm -hmm. He can hear the crowds from time to time. They're talking about U-boats. More of the senile old ladies' ramblings. Ramblings about World War II. His words become jumbled. Eventually, he just keeps repeating the word simple. Sample. I think he starts with simple and moves into sample. Yeah, but it's it's one or the other. Mm -hmm. But, and here, Lisa Hools, give her the Oscar moment. She's choked up. Well, first we, he he starts repeating it, and the doctor says he's gone. This he's just he's just a he's just a broken radio now. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, Lisa Soul's uh, Oscar moment. Choked up, she says, "I think it's time to say goodbye to our man in the sunshine chopper." Oh God. And again, we love Ken Loney because mm-hmm. we just know him as like just a simple a, guy, a simple dude Dodge who's in dart. his Dodge Dart playing helicopter sounds because yeah. people get a charge out of it. Yeah. He's and, just he's just trying he's just making his way. And Sydney's about to cry and Grant's trying to comfort her. Sydney Sydney is crying. Sydney is crying mm-hmm. and Grant's trying to comfort her and here we get one of the most brilliant reversals in film history. Best one of the best bits ever. And he says you 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 must have been really close, huh? And Sydney admits that Ken was a pedophile. Not not really a pedophile, mm-hmm. but just we didn't let our kids around him. And suddenly the character is so different. But at the same time, only just the same. Because it's like, we've but been she, through... She follows it up with, like, you just didn't let your kids around him. But you know someone for 17 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's... <laughs> 
it's such a unique death where it's not like, oh, great, they're finally dead, or I'm so sad they're dead. It's like, oh, oh shit, that just happened. You're sad, and then you're like... Then you get... then you Suddenly, this is way more complicated. Yeah, you realize, oh, I know nothing about this character. I've never even fucking seen him. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's... it's brilliant and it's so unnecessary but it works so fucking well like and it also it's it's very realistic like that's just the kind of the like there are a lot of small towns that just have a town pedophile that everyone mm-hmm. just kind of understands you don't let your kids around who's the town pedophile in uh maine wherever the fuck you come from in maine uh Sako. i don't Sako. Sako. oh man tell uh, me about Sako. Sako. well we live in down the street from a pet cemetery not yeah. even a joke um there's a lot of pot smoking uh going on mm-hmm. uh and there's a cursed Sako river that every every year a certain number of white babies have to be sacrificed to specifically white babies oh yeah yeah okay. well it's a native american curse gotcha yeah they, gotcha. they, they cursed us and yeah. Sako comes out of the river and less children mm, i don't i don't know who the town pedophile was in, in Sako. Okay. Sako is also like oh that's the name of the town you're from that wasn't the name of the pedophile no Sako i thought you were town. <laughs> i thought you were saying that the i, I thought it was a bit no but you were just talking like about my actual your imaginary town. pedophile <laughs> talking about my actual town okay Sako. Yeah, uh, that's great. What a fucking stupid name. S A C O. I don't know that that makes it better. It should be Sacco. Yeah, well, it's Sacco. Well, yeah. I'll write the mayor. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> you do that. You do that. Laurel Ann is staring into the booth. Dr. Mm-hmm. John Mendez, who has apparently studied these conversationalists quite a bit, mm-hmm. he's our expert. He's, is, like I said, he, com- he comes in on the exposition train. He's He's the guy. He's the guy who comes in to, ex- Dr. Van Helsing, in the, in, yeah. after Lucy's death, comes in to explain to uh, the the family, like, what vampires are. He comes in to explain what the conversationalists are. And for a long time when I watched this movie, because I've watched it a few times, right? I have taken the entrance of Dr. John Mendez as the point where the movie starts to go downhill. I believe that the thir- last third of this film is the weakest part of the film, because it becomes much more conventional. Mm-hmm. But this time I kept waiting for the drop. Mm-hmm. It didn't bother me as much this time. Yeah, I think that there's more... Again, the third act of this movie, I keep building to it. I believe that this movie is about war. Okay. I believe that this movie is about the... Uh, specifically the Iraq War, the War on Terror, the War in Afghanistan, all that. All that post-9-11 shit. I think that there's more to this third act pointing towards that, but the the main bit of Doctor Mendez is there is yes to to sort of bring sort of like uh, explain when, everything whenever David Frost does a, a pass at a Twin Peaks script that David Lynch Mark has already Frost. Re- Mark Frost does a pass at a Twin Peaks script that script that David Lynch has already written. It's to take all of this crazy shit that we've seen so far. And, and bring it make home. sense of it. Make sense of it. I need to go to the bathroom very badly. Okay. So Laurel Ann is staring into the booth, mm-hmm. and uh, Mendez has been talking about how they need to find a victim. They need to find a voice to pass the virus on into. Right. Laurel Ann obviously cannot get to to them in the booth. So apparently, what happens to the conversationalists when they can't find somebody mm-hmm. is they vomit a torrent of blood. Mm-hmm. Which and is just, what happens to Laurel and just Ann. fucking die. So essentially, the way that it's it's described, there is a virus yes. living in 
language. Yes. And it passes through words, specifically English words, mm -hmm. uh, into different people. And then its goal is to keep the body alive. But by being in the human body, it's destroying it. Yeah. Uh, so it's whatever this thing is, this virus, it's trying to keep itself alive. It can only exist in hosts through language. Uh, so it just keeps jumping from body to body to body, yeah. trying to stay alive, while it's very rapidly burning through yeah. bodies. This is such a genius conceit. Like, yeah. this is fucking brilliant. This is, like, the best kind of Doctor Who plot. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, speaking of... Uh, it's so brilliant that Metal Gear Solid Phantom Pain used a similar plot device where there's a parasite that only infects people that use English. Hmm. Okay. And it's it's sort of uh, spoiler alerts for Metal Gear Solid Phantom Pain. It was bioengineered as a retaliation against the imperialistic nature of English-speaking people. Okay. So it's like, here's our revenge. Hmm. If you speak this language, you're going to die from this parasite. Based on what I know about Phantom Pain, I'm betting it was much less in, uh, intelligent in that uh, story than it was in this. Metal Gear Solid is a weird thing mm -hmm. uh, where it's... The hyper-complexity of it yeah. sort of masquerades as intelligence. <laughs> I know that my, my, my friend Steven, fan of the show, hey Steven, is a huge Metal Gear Solid fan. Yeah. And I know that he was very disappointed by Phantom Pain. Really? Yeah. I, I had fun with it. I thought it All was right. okay. Sure. You can make a horse shit on command. <laughs> well, best game ever, five mm -hmm. out of five. My <laughs> nephew, when he was like eight and I showed him that, loved that. <laughs> Um, Phantom Pain has its problems. I, I found the gameplay at least uh, fun enough. Okay. You can also uh, tranquilize animals and put them in an animal sanctuary. Right. And then make them shit on command. Well, that's just the horse. Oh, just you the horse? You can only do that with the horse. Uh, the horse well, is not in the sanctuary. See, see, see. I, if, you, if you said that you could make any animal shit on command. I mean, that's a dream game. Yeah, that's a dream game right there. That's Someone get game. Elon Musk on that. <laughs> Dude, why doesn't Elon Musk make video games? Why doesn't Elon Musk make anything useful to yeah. anyone ever? I mean, yeah. So why doesn't he make the animal shitting game? Sure, yeah. That'd be a better. That would be a better uh, use. That's of the his ultimate time. god sim. <laughs> <laughs> that's the ultimate uh, argument against simulation theory is that we can't make animal shit on command. Well, and we obviously would if this were a simulation. Obviously, if someone were in control of this simulation, we, mm -hmm. we'd just be shitting all the time. <laughs> As Dr. John Mendez explains the situation, Grant questions whether they should be talking at all. Mm -hmm. And Dr. John Mendez has the great line about how talk radio is high risk. <laughs> Grant yes. says they need to get the news out. Yes. Grant's true blue. At the end of the day, he's, yeah. it's not clearly at this point, it's not about ratings or anything no. or, or pissing people off. It's like, we need to tell people. Yeah, we need, and we need people to know. The conversationalists are banging on the doors outside. But at the same time, by trying to get the word out and, well, he might, they might literally get a word out yes. that might have the being in it. And by doing that, uh, oh, I fucked up. What? I'll cut that out. Don't worry. Uh, Laurel Ann doesn't die yet. Okay. But like by, by trying to get the word out, they might get the word out. And by, so 
by spreading the message, the news of what's going on, no matter how altruistic that uh, desire might be, that might also be the key to the end of the world. Yes. Uh, Sydney gets a call from one of her kids who she keeps calling like honey and sweetheart and stuff like that. Which are all terms of endearment. They keep telling her, stop that. Don't yeah. do that. Don't do that. Meanwhile, Laurel Ann is violently throwing herself at the glass mm-hmm. of the booth. Mm-hmm. Also, Sydney uses a lot of terms of endearment in general. She kept calling Laurel Ann honey and stuff like yes. that. Yes. The conversationalists have gotten in. And here's where the movie did start to dip for me a little bit. Well, she, she first Laurel Ann dies. Oh, shit. You're right. Sorry. Yeah. Grant regrets that he never gave Laurel Ann her valentine. Yeah. Which you got the girl, the ladies' valentines earlier. Mm-hmm. And here's where Laurel Ann, not being able to find a victim, mm-hmm. vomits a torrent of blood onto the glass and keels over. So this isn't like other zombie apocalypse, like the George Romero zombie apocalypse, where they just kind of like go on and just keep living like there's no real consequences to them not finding victims if you don't find a victim the god bug as as, mendez uh, calls it it, which i love that term yes god bug uh as mendez refers to it uh it will literally burn you up and destroy you from the inside out you need to pass it on or you're fucked the conversationalists have gotten in as I said, here's where the movie begins to really dip for me. Mm-hmm. Again, not so much, but about a half an hour left, and the movie has become much more like a regular zombie movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they start playing a, a, a couple of more familiar notes here. It doesn't really bother me, okay? but I can definitely see how, with how unique the movie has been up until now. But to be fair, again... Ooh, <laughs> sorry, just dropped my phone on my cat. Sorry, buddy. Uh, if... To be fair, again, comparing this to War of the Worlds, the second half of War of the Worlds, the broadcast version, also dips. Yeah. In because after the first half where they do all the like the fun broadcast shit, they have to do like a more traditional story. And yeah, there has to up. be a climax. There, there has, has to be, to be an be, ending. Yeah. And there has to be some explanations, which kills things yeah. almost 100 percent of the time exactly oh no the the aliens got defeated by the common cold yeah yeah, yeah. to lure the conversationalists away they broadcast a message on the loudspeaker outside the well me- first they communicate that they're going to do this between each other by using magic marker on paper yes and the sound of magic marker on paper is like nails on a chalkboard to me yeah i hate it so I can understand much. that. So that's a part where the movie dips for me. Okay. Just, just listening to... My my thing like that is anything that sort of mimics the first notes of an alarm clock. Like mm. that. Like sometimes some things will just hit that note perfectly. It won't even sound like an alarm clock, but it's like that note is like... There's an episode of the Christopher Eccleston Doctor Who where they're on a space station and they clearly, like, whoever was doing the, the sound effects was just, like, looking for whatever beeps and whistles they could just throw in there to mm-hmm. make it sound like a space station in the background. And one of the sounds that they chose was just an alarm clock. And oh. so they just have that playing over and over again in the far back. Gotcha. Only I can hear it, I feel like, when I watch it. But, like, it, I get so stressed out watching that episode. But the message they choose is Sydney Breyer is alive because she's the one with children. Right. She's the one who has the most reason to survive. And also her conversation with her kid got cut off. Yes. Uh, so she's, yeah, so that Sydney Breyer is alive. And Grant Massey delivers it into the microphone 
As only Steve McCaddy can. As if it's the most important message in the world. Yes. Which... Smooth as fucking butter with his voice. And let's... Let's now... We'll get into it more a little bit later. This is not a movie about sexual tension, obviously, but throughout you can tell that there's chemistry between Sidney and Grant as much as they're opposites and much they drive each other crazy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you can mm-hmm. feel that chemistry so, like... Yeah, you can, you can, you can, especially in like the moments when they they drop their professional yeah. exteriors and like really communicate as people. Like you can tell that there is there is care. Yeah, there there is care for each other. So like she she cares that he feels fulfilled in this job. She yeah. just she, he's not a performing monkey for her. She wants him to be happy. Yeah, he wants her to be happy. Because again, they just keep missing. The communication. As much as Grant Mazzy can be a full of himself asshole, he is a good person at his core. Right. Doctor John Mendez begins to babble in a foreign language. I couldn't tell what it was. It sounded a little Germanic. I um, thought it was actually Spanish. Mm, I'm not sure. Um, I don't. I, I mean, I, maybe I'm just assuming that because his name is Mendez. I don't. I'm not sure. But he's. But the reason why he starts to babble in a foreign language is because he realizes it's he, only English. He's been infected already. Okay. He starts saying breathe, 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 and like, uh, so, just like Laurel Ann did, putting breathe in the sentences that they, where it doesn't belong. Yeah. And so he's. And so, uh, uh, yesterday I watched this movie and took my notes on it sent Brad a text where I started saying, breathe, 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 as a reference to the scene, and Brad thought that I thought he was having a panic attack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which was very funny to me. But uh, That's uh, great. I was mostly just sort of confused and right. eventually worried about you. Yeah, yeah, because I just, I, just I just kept doubling down on the bit. Because I... <laughs> I had not finished my rewatch because right. of attention issues. Sure. Uh, so Which I did fine. not get the reference. Yeah, you were also in the middle of your day. Like, yeah. Know, I was just sitting there watching a movie. Well, Grant, the middle of my day is about 9 o'clock in the morning. Sure. We talked after I was done with work. Not that okay. it's important. Sure. But uh, DJM, as I refer to him in my notes, <laughs> Dr. John Mendez, realized that it's only the English language that's infected, right. which makes sense because the English language is an abortion of a language. Yes. It's, uh, yeah. And Sydney and Grant take the time to dip out of the booth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As they try to make their way to the kitchen, they encounter the little girl, Farage, mm-hmm. from Lawrence and the Arabians, who yes. was infected. Again, the only two zombies we really get to see... Laurel Ann. Laurel Ann and, and an adorable Farage. little girl. Uh, so, two people that it's impossible to feel good about being zombies. And I think they take Farage out of her brown face, so that makes... Maybe. So you're not like they're stomping a racist child. I'm... How many racist children have you met? <laughs> What's the most racist child you've met? Most racist child? Uh, there was... there. I, I went back in time and met baby Hitler once. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why didn't you kill him? Uh, I tried, honestly, kick my ass. Oh, like I, baby I, Thanos in Cosmic Ghost Rider. That, right. That's why I don't talk about it, because it's embarrassing. Yeah, you, you know? got beat up by a baby. Be- getting beat up by a baby, but also a baby with a mustache. It's yeah. like, man, like, that's that sucks. I got beat up by baby Jane from the movie <laughs> Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. 
as as an old lady, as not an old as lady, like a young right. Shirley Temple knockoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. um, but like Betty Betty Davis, just yeah, like, kicked your ass. Those Betty Davis eyes really put me under the ground. Right, yeah. That's just like she. It's like a Pokemon move. She like it's, yeah. it startles you with those, and then she just like goes for the jugular. Betty Davis used glare. <laughs> exactly. She attacks Sydney. And mm-hmm. Grant goes to the rescue, and kudos to this this whatever stunt person got into the Farage clothes. Mm-hmm. They take a smack to the wall and bounce mm-hmm. right off. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. we have a hard cut. Yes, and next we see Grant and Sydney kicking the shit out of this girl. Well, it's it's even more than that. So what we the way it's set up, Grant is in front of a wall. He starts running towards the little girl to you know kill her. Yeah. Um. He's running towards the camera, hard cut in the middle of his action. We're just looking at that wall now. Yes, He's and it's gone. a poster of Grant Mazzy. It's like a banner ad of Grant Mazzy. Grant Mazzy Mazzy's in the show, morning. and you hear the violence happening off camera, and then it cuts back to them just as they're like doing the final like two or three kicks. Yeah. to kill the kid, and the kid is off uh, out of frame. When we first talked about this, I remember complaining about this. Really? I remember thinking that this was uh, like a budgetary thing. Like they were trying to save money. Like they couldn't no. afford. Like they couldn't afford to film a fight scene. I or something never like that. felt that. I remember saying that when we recorded it last time. Uh, I think this time, to me, it felt more like the scene in Taxi Driver where Travis Bickle's having a very embarrassing phone conversation and the mm-hmm. camera pans away from him as if, like, this is too shameful No, to yeah, this is violence that we don't need to see. This is, like, this is the character's darkest moment yeah. when they are literally killing a child, like a victim. And this is the one point where, like, sort of, like, is it real, is it not, really goes into effect because of the hard cut we're supposed to assume... Some sort of mental shit. Did you shit yourself, or is it the no, cat? No, that's the cat. Okay. Yeah. Do you want me to go take care of that? I've been meaning to do that. No, it's fine. I just wanted to make sure that you weren't like. I'm a... fine. Yeah. Okay. I'm fine. It's just it's it, one of the cats didn't bury their shit well enough. Okay. We can finish out the episode, but yeah, I I love this bit. Mm-hmm. And here's again, like I kept waiting for it's like okay, well, where's the part I don't like? Because yeah, the Laurel Land stuff is good. The mm-hmm. stuff with the kid is very good and upsetting, especially for yeah. Sydney, who breaks down and sobs. And then they have this great conversation about because they see DJM in the mm-hmm. booth just like rambling to himself, and they're like, "Yes." Then now they're speaking French. He's trying. I think he's trying to drown out because, uh, like, he's infected. It's in there. Yeah. Like, but so in order to prevent himself from speaking English and worsening the effect, he's just trying to drown it out with gotcha. babble in in this other language. But they have this great conversation, and again, they're speaking French now. Yes. About, like... which Wait, which are they speaking French now? They are speaking French. They keep slipping into English because Grant doesn't know French that well. He knows well. un petit. He knows un petit. But they are both Canadian, so they're, they're yeah. passingly okay with French. But Grant's... Grant's argument is that Sydney killed the kid, so she should also kill the doctor. Yes. And then Sydney says, no, you killed the kid. And Grant's like... Okay, I killed the kid, so you should kill the doctor. <laughs> Grant's still an asshole. Like he's yeah. still But there and again, But again, I let's say we were in this situation. Sure. You would make me kill that doctor, wouldn't you? <laughs> You'd be like, You're the more fucked up one. You gotta kill him. Uh 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I don't think I would. I oh, think, you would volunteer. You would volunteer to kill him. I wouldn't want to. I think I would be in a very similar situation to them, where like it, it's it's very relatable. Like in in movies, in zombie movies, usually you have a character who starts out as an everyman, and then like within two seconds of being in a zombie apocalypse, yeah. is a knife wielding badass. Uh, in real life, it would be like this. It would be like a lot of hemming and hawing over like can we yeah take a life obviously in the heat of battle when someone jumps you it's much easier to go into fight or yeah. flight but when you're looking at another person that might become a threat to you trying to make that calculation in your head that's a much more difficult question and both of them are dealing with that and yeah. grant to his credit in the end finally says like i will kill yeah. the doctor the lights go out when the power comes back on, the French national anthem, which I cannot pronounce the actual name of, is mm -hmm. playing. Uh, made famous by Casablanca. That's where they yes, got it from. That's where they got it from. The French were like, that's a good song. Let's let's make that our whole shebang. <laughs> uh, they hide in a tool room with the doctor slipping in behind them. But soon he goes out the window, drawing the crowd mm -hmm. away. Yes. DJM, good guy hero in the end. He runs out and he yells out, Sidney Breyer is alive. Sidney Breyer is alive. Drawing them away. Great little detail. Sydney is scrolling a confession about killing the girl on the wall. Yes, but before that, we there's a there's like a uh, a cutaway to a couple of other establishing shots to establish that they've now been in this tool room for a while. Yes, and one of those shots is a shot of word magnets. Oh yeah, on a wall, including the phrase "always eat meat." Yes, which I found fun. Uh, Sydney gets drunk off some single malt. Mm -hmm. Which, I don't know if you've ever had single malt whiskey. I have not. Oh my God, so good. Is it? It's, it's, if I ever got like super rich, mm -hmm. like Elon Musk rich. Right. I would just have a faucet in my home <laughs> that dispensed single malt whiskey. Okay. And I would drink that instead of water and I would die in two years. <laughs> like I would just get fully cirrhosis did. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, most people get cirrhosis of the liver. I'd get cirrhosis of the lungs. <laughs> Just from inhaling single malt fumes all day. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to point out is there is a poster in the closet with them advertising a local band that's performing called Hyena Dog Robbery. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I saw that, too. <laughs> I didn't make note of it, but it's... Which is the best band name. And again, incomprehensible. Yeah. Language. Incomprehensible. Language. Uh, Grant is listening to his interview with Nigel Healing. Mm -hmm. Grant figures it out. The virus spreads by understanding a word, so how do you not understand a word? Mm -hmm. By repeating it, making it unrecognizable. Which is why the conversationalists are always repeating words, because it's an immune response. Yes. They're trying it's... to make the words meaningless to get them out of their head. And again, a brilliant idea, like... What other zombie movie has considered the body's immune response to the virus? Well, granted, they're usually dead, so there is no immune response, but... Right, right. but like, yeah, no, that that never comes up, because it's just like, you're bitten, you're done. Yeah. Sydney is infected, she keeps repeating the word kill. Grant tells her that kill which isn't is, kill. Which is, which is very well set up, because she keeps saying the word kill... Long before you realize that's a thing, yeah, because she's she she's drinking a lot and she's obsessed with her guilt over killing this child. Yes, yeah. Uh, he tells her that kill is different words. Finally, ending on kiss. Kill is kiss, mm -hmm. and they kiss. Yes, she says, "Kill me," and she, and he kisses her, which is 
That's great. It's 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 that's, very cute. That's cute. That's it's really very cute. Good. That's really um, good. Also, again, married in real life. It's adorbs. And again, this kiss felt organic. It felt real. It felt mm-hmm. earned. This is not the kiss in Rise of Skywalker, where it's just like, yeah, let's make them kiss. Why yeah. not? Yeah, let's just make them kiss. Uh, so Grant cures Sydney. They go back into the booth. They're gonna save the fucking world. Yes. Sydney is not for it. She's sort of like, sure, why not? I guess. Yeah. But like, what are what are we gonna do? And he begins his broadcast. And he doesn't really have a plan either. He's like, he's all full of gusto, but he has no idea what he's doing. Yeah. He yeah. just, he's just. I need to do my job as a radio man. Mm-hmm. Here's my question. He begins his broadcast, and here's mm-hmm. the big question of this movie. Yeah. I want to put this to you. Okay. What if this movie were the same, except mm-hmm. instead of Grant Mazzy, it was Samuel L. Jackson mm. as Senior Love Daddy <laughs> from Do the Right Thing? Right, right, right. How um, amazing would that fucking be? That would be amazing. He would be less, because he'd just be going from like some neighborhood in Brooklyn to some uh, neighborhood up in, in Canada. He would be much less like annoyed at his at his circumstances, I think, yeah. than Grant Mazzy. But he would be just as entertaining. Uh, All you zombies need to chill out! Exactly. He'd, he'd be amazing. He'd be absolutely amazing. Grant uh, begins giving alternatives for words, and mm-hmm. Sydney, God bless her heart, still a producer to the very end, mm-hmm. tells him he's fucking up. <laughs> Their relationship hasn't changed that much. Nope, and he he's rolling with it. He's he's taking the notes. The military is outside. We hear choppers. Mm-hmm. Grant screams at everybody to stop. Well, the friend, the the people, and they think that he's infected because of the things he's saying don't yeah. make sense to them, and that they haven't figured out how it works. They just know. That people stop making sense yes. when they're infected, so they think he's infected. Just like the Talking Heads, right? Exactly. But here's here's where the message of the movie, in my opinion, comes full circle with Grant's bit. Where I'll... they they hear them. Sydney specifically says they're just shooting everyone. They don't care what we're doing. They're just shooting everyone. They're bombing everyone, and he yells everything to stop. And he has the great lines: "You're just killing scared people. It's what you always do. You're like dogs. You smell fear and you pounce." I want to make I want to make it clear when he yells stop in the most theatrical moment of the movie it actually does stop like yeah. the bombs the guns everything stops and he doesn't deliver this at, in shouting like Peter Capaldi as the doctor yelling at people he delivers it it's it's stern he brings it back he brings it down and he's like you're just killing scared people it's what you always do Grant is doing his take no prisoner shtick in a way that finally works and, and finally is used for something. good. Yeah, and he's strong and powerful. Mm-hmm. He is, uh, to borrow a phrase from Henry Rollins, he is stentorian from the mountain. <laughs> uh, it's not the end of the world, folks. It's just the end of the day. And he says, "We were never making sense. We mm-hmm. were never making sense." Here's where I think the movie comes together. In, into this this thing I've been alluding to. Uh, we find out that Laura Lamb was in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and he talks about, again, like his idea of marketing his show is by marketing... Uh, anger. Anger, uh, repulsion. Re- reactionary repulsion, all this stuff. And he wants people to react off of what he's giving out negatively so that they will come back to him and, and it, again, pass it around like a, a viral yeah. thing, a virus. Um, I believe that this movie 
is at the end of the day about the failure of the modern day media and how it contributed to the panic after 9-11 that was able to be uh, utilized by bad actors to get us into the war on terror. Okay. Uh, the the conversationalist thing, it's, it's a horrible thing that's happening. There's yes. a horrible thing that's happening. You need to get that word out. Of course you do. But when it's more important for you to just, like, get words out and just sort of, like, spill out like Ni- Nigel Healing is... Yeah. You're just you're just creating panic. You're like like Sydney accuses him of. You're just creating panic. You're creating a bad system where everyone is isolated. Everyone's in their own little bubble, going insane, listening to all this crazy, sh- unconfirmed shit coming yeah. in over the wire, and not knowing like the first twenty four hours after nine eleven, nobody knew what the fuck was going on, no. including in Canada. People f- were fucking terrified, and in the end. Um, when he figures out what's going on and he figures out the simple way to handle everything, he's, he's at, in the end, he tells him you're, he, I don't believe that he's talking about the situation in the movie. I believe he's literally talking about Iraq. He's talking about, we didn't go over there to fight terror. We went over there and started killing mothers and fathers and children. Yes. And so he, he's saying you're just killing scared people. That's what you always, what you always do. do. You're like a dog. You're like dogs. You smell fear and you pounce. And you pounce. We were never making sense. We were never making sense. And, uh, but, uh, it's not the end of the world. 9-11 was not the end of the world. It's, it's just, just the, the end, end of, of the, the day. day. And I'm still here, you fuckers. No, it's I'm still here, you cocksuckers. I'm still here, you cocksuckers. And it's, and at the end of the day, great, powerful moment. And it's, I would say, yes, it is strong. It is, it is powerful, but it is strong and it is powerful because it is coming from a place of not, um, manipulation. No. Or authority. It's It's coming from a place of genuine compassion. Yeah. And that is what is powerful is not one isolated great man. It is connection, yes. Which is what modern media, as many people have argued, uh, the global village, as I believe Marshall McLuhan once put it, has isolated us and made us less, ironically, less able to communicate effectively than ever before. I think a lot of that is probably the intention of the filmmakers. I, I, I think you're onto something. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I put this together in my head like right before he got into his speech. Yeah, and I was. I'm about to right now. I was fully crying. Uh, I yeah. I get. I'm I'm actually getting a little worked up. Yeah. too talking about it. It's it's such a wonderful, powerful moment where a character and an actor we love mm-hmm. is just everything is firing on all pistons. The writing, mm-hmm. the acting, the camera work. It, it's it's the every monologue that Grant Massey has in this movie is one of the best monologues in movie history. This movie. This is the greatest monologue in movie history, like, at least a contender. Like, holy yeah. fucking shit. This movie is a masterpiece. Yeah. This movie is a masterpiece. Uh, Grant finishes his broadcast. Mm-hmm. French authorities start a countdown. As it reaches one, Sydney kisses Grant, and we get credits. Now, after the movie, 
after the movie. There's a weird little uh, black and white <laughs> epilogue that so slowly fades into color, seemingly set outside the movie. Yeah. I, I don't know that... You just sort of have to see it. I, I don't know that I can properly explain it. We talked about this in the last episode, and we came up with an answer for what it is. Okay. Uh, I don't remember if this is something that you found the director talking about, or like a theory you found online. Okay. But the idea that you had, or somebody had, when we were talking about this last time, is that it's an antidote for the movie. Okay, yes. Because I think on Wikipedia they say that they're talking improvised dialogue. It's a mm. way... It, it, now I remember this. Yeah. Yes. Uh, because it's such a non sequitur. They're mm-hmm. in a sushi house. Lisa Hool is in sort of like a, a Chiangsam. It's not oh. a kimono. Oh, sorry. Uh, it's some sort of Chiangsam like dress. I have not heard that word before. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not important. Okay. Um, and they're they're just saying this nonsense. Like it, it sort of makes sense, but it doesn't make sense not in context really. to the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah. But this is the nonsense to cure us from the movie. Yeah, I I rewatched most of the commentary for this episode, but I didn't have time to finish it. Sure, but I believe that the director and writer sort of insinuate that because if if the conversationalist virus, assuming that the conversationalist vi- virus is real, yes, uh, y- by understanding it and by understanding the meaning behind the words used to explain it in the movie. Uh, you've been infected. And now you need this bit of nonsense to unfect you. So like uh, Monty Python curing cats by confusing them, <laughs> uh, this scene is there to confuse you. Unfortunately, by now explaining that, we have now made sense. Yes. And now everyone who's listened to this podcast will die in seven days. But I want to <laughs> mention uh, my favorite line from this bit. Mm-hmm. We steal the loot and knock boots in the free world. Oh my God, so good. So, uh, this episode is going very long, so I'm going to make this fast. There were planned sequels for Pontypool, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pontypool changes, and Pontypool changes everything. More violent and perverse. Uh, Mm -hmm. They seem to still hope to make these movies, but there is a spinoff based on the last bit. Just that last confusing bit. Called Dreamland, which came out in 2020, I believe. Yes. It's... Do not watch it because you love Pontypool. No. Because you are not going to get Pontypool. No. You're going to get more Steve McCaddy. Yes. Which is always good. And And he plays a dual role. And you're getting more of the actress who played Sydney. Uh, Lisa Hool. Lisa Hool is in it. Yes. It has a lot of potential. It does not live up to that potential. Still Mm -hmm. worth seeing. Support the actor and the creators. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, Billy, is there anything else you would like to say very quickly about Pontypool? Uh, Summer is a twittering bird that logically smells like magic. Agreed. Magic Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, next week, we hope to have superfan Steven on. Yes. To talk about hackers. We'll see if that happens. Yeah. If not, Billy will bring us something equally juicy, I'm sure. I'll pull something out of my ass. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>